Justin Jordan came to the studio today to discuss his book, And Then I Cried, Stories of a Mortuary NCO, as well as his time in the Air Force as an NCO handling bodies and the notable PTSD he encountered as a result. We also discussed his recovery with paws and stripes, various forms of therapy, including talk therapy and EMDR, as well as how Warrior's Heart is helping veterans who are suffering from addiction to get on with their lives and re-enter society. With that, here is my conversation with Justin Jordan. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have Justin Jordan. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. So you had a couple hour drive San Antonio? Two and a half hours. I took the long way. Got up a little early. Wanted Uh to see. uh, I I love driving through the hill country. Oh, who doesn't? It's amazing in there. It's a nice drive. Yeah. I think people have a weird perception of Texas if they've never been here. That's all flat and Mm -hmm. tumbleweeds like you... Like you see in like cartoons or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it is. Cause, yeah. You know, tech people don't realize how big Texas really is. You know, we just live in a small portion of it, you know, between here in San Antonio and Austin. And man, it's beautiful out here. It really is. You can drive all day in Texas and still be in Texas. <laughs> you know, I, I tell friends, I, I grew up in the, the you know, in Kentucky, so in the middle part of the country, and people are like, well, hey, I'll be in Texas this week. You want to get together? <laughs> I'm like, where are you going to be? And they're like, Dallas. And I'm like, well, that's like you driving to Atlanta. So, uh, no. And then I try to tell them, I said, if you put Texas on the East Coast, it would reach to Texas. Just so you understand how big it is. So... Yeah, I get that sometimes too. People will fly into Dallas. I'm like, that's a three and a half hour drive from where I'm at. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's... It's almost six like hours. We're cool, bro, but yeah. I'm not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, thank you. No, no. Well, Justin, we probably have a lot to talk about, but I think um, it'd probably be best to start with talking about your history and kind of um, how you came about writing this book and stuff. So, why don't you give us kind of a background on how you got into the military in the sure. first place? Well, thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Um, well, as I say it, as I said. I uh, grew up in Kentucky. My parents were both teachers. My dad was a, a principal. My mother was a, a math teacher. So, I, you know, I got to see early on being in service to others, and I just fell in love with it. I had an aunt that was, uh, you know, a nurse. So, you know, it just really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Like being in service to others is what I was put here to do. It's kind of how I felt. So after high school, I tried a bunch of different trades, and, you know, trying to find my way, and I just said, you know what, the military was right for me. Um, so I went to the recruiter and, uh, the air force it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I did a, a what, why air force? Uh, well, I, I tried the army, d- just didn't feel right. You know, uh, mm. you know, those guys are a lot tougher than I am. So, <laughs> uh, I was like chair force it is, <laughs> right? but I don't know. It just appealed to me. Uh, and the job offerings, uh, you know, at the time, uh, that were available, you know, really kind of spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to be a pilot in the back no, of your head? No, I, I thought, you know, the technological career fields, you know, the, the you know, they do a lot of space. And, and you know, my, my father was a pilot when he was a young man, like 16. He was mm-hmm. one of the youngest pilots at the time. Him and his father had an airlines called Jordan Airlines. I wish they would have kept that name. Yeah, right. Because we would be rich. <laughs> <laughs> Air Jordan, Jordan Airlines. That's right. Man. But. No, they shut it down after his his brother had an ac- a car accident and passed away when he was oh. only eighteen. So he only flew for a couple of years, but I'd always see the pictures and how he romanticized about being a pilot. So I think that's kind of what you know subconsciously drew me to the Air Force. Yeah. I had no you know like being a pilot wasn't part of my plan. 
So it was just kind of like, okay, Air Force it is. And when I got there, they started me as, you know, I was in the, what they called the services career field, which is where all the cooks work. And was uh, that your first choice? You're like, I want no, to be a- I was open general. So <laughs> it was kind of like, Hey, <laughs> guess what you're going to do? And I was like, no, thank you. But at the same time, it was really a breadth of experience type career field. I could work anywhere from the, uh, you know, dining facilities, you know, most people call them chow halls, but that's a no, no in the air. Force, yeah, why, why, you know, why? I don't know, politically correct words or whatever, but not allowed to eat chow. <laughs> no, it's just, it's demeaning, right? I don't know. Okay. But so I call it a chow hall. <laughs> uh, I worked in them. So, and then, you know, in the fitness centers and the gyms, uh, hotel, motel, man. So, you know, hospitality. And then one of the little lesser known parts of that career field was mortuary affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, the only explanation I ever got of why it was in our career fields because we owned all the refrigerators. That's it. That's no one really knew. Wait, okay, but are they reuse? Are this? It's not the same refrigerators, literally. Is no. it? Well, I mean, no. Uh-uh. They would have their, of course, separated. But. Okay, but uh, but a second <laughs> second question: Are they yeah. the, literally the same brands? Are they? Yeah, we would we would use you know especially downrange we would use you know similar uh, ones. We already had them in inventory. Just would never use them for you know. Yeah, food, once once they've been contaminated, they're exactly they're they're just for that purpose. Uh-huh. The Air Force goes to great lengths to create a dignified transfer of human remains. Um, we treat every remains like it's our brother or sisters because it is. Yeah. Uh, even um, other services, uh, you know, uh, uh, the word I'm looking for, um, like allied, allied, yeah, allied forces, allied forces. You know, um, it's a big deal. And the Air Force, like I said, goes to great lengths to make sure that the entire process from downrange, even if it's happy, even if you're, if you're deceased stateside, which if you in the book would talk about most of the cases I worked were stateside, hmm. but the ones, man, it, they just really go to above and beyond to make sure the family's taken care of, in my opinion. Yeah. So tell us, um, wh- why did you feel the need to write this book? Like what, what was... What was kind of drawing at you to, to do that? Well, cause this uh, is a, this is a pretty deep, hard topic. Yeah. Um, most people wouldn't even attempt it. Well, um, you know, for a lot of years doing the job, I just a stoic, right? I, I was required to be, I stood there at funerals or in the back rooms of, of funeral homes, uh, looking at the deceased. And I just, you know, was just doing my job. Right. And then there, and I can't grieve for someone I didn't know, but I was silently grieving. Uh, When you are feet away from a child that's deceased on the table, um, it affects you no matter who you are. Uh, Or a friend of yours passes away and you have to work on their remains. It gives you an intimate look at your own mortality. And to be honest with it, it scares the shit out of me. But I wasn't really willing to admit that that was what was going on because I had to be stoic. I had to be tough because I was, what was, what was scary about it to you? Just staring death in the face every single day. Were you afraid that you didn't know what was going to happen afterwards or the well, death, there was death a spiritual might, component? The absolutely. Might, the death might hurt or like what was, what was going on? It's just, I don't necessarily know what it was, but it, it really, you know, hit a, a chord in my, my soul and, and to see how fragile we are, really, you know, just for me, it made everything 
you know, uh, me afraid of everything, hyper vigilant, you name it. Yeah. I would, when I was in it and doing it, not so much, you know, and I didn't know what was going on with me, but you know, not sleeping, the nightmares, all of that started happening about three or four years in after a, a friend of mine passed away and I worked his case. Um, and then, I, and I felt broken. I felt, you know, like a misfit toy. I, I didn't, I couldn't do my job as well as I, I used to. So I just try to press through, uh, you know, and, you know, I didn't use the right tools all the time. And it just, so in 2009, I asked for help because I was like, I can't do this on my own. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, what would I do? What would I tell my troops if they were struggling? I'd tell them to get help, mm. you know, and I wouldn't beat them up for it. Because a lot of times that's what we're afraid of. We're going to lose our career. And that's what I was afraid of. I'd go to mental health and ask for help. So I would go to the parking lot, sit in my truck. I had this big jacked up Dodge truck. I don't know. I went through a phase or something. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> knew you were going to move to Texas eventually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in Arizona and I sat in the parking lot. I would go by the flight kitchen and grab a box lunch. Cause you know, I worked in the career field that we owned all the chow halls so I could walk in the back door, mm-hmm. <laughs> grabbed a box lunch and I would eat, I would eat that lunch and trying to muster up the courage to, to go in and say, Hey, I'm broken or I feel broken and I don't know how to deal with this and I'm not sure what to do. So, uh, I finally did after about a month of doing that, you know, sporadically here and there, I, I went in and asked for help. And the therapist I saw was a civilian, which kind of was comforting to me because I was like, okay, well this, this guy's not going to tell them the bosses, right? Mm-hmm. It'll be between us. And he assured me it would be, you know? So we started talking and he goes, man, you've got a pretty complex case of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'd really like to work with you on this thing called EMDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they take, you know, eye movements. Uh, uh, and we actually, at Warriors Heart, where I work now, we actually use one of that as one of our therapeutic modalities. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know. So that. he started helping me process one of the, uh, in my mind, what was the most prolific incident I went through. And... You know, I, I started getting better a little bit, but he said, Hey man, you might want to consider getting orders and moving to a new location. Cause everything here is triggering for you. He goes, normally I don't talk avoidance. I don't say, Hey, you should get away from the things you should, we should lean into it mm-hmm. and work through it. He goes, but you've seen so much. Everything is going to, it's going to be an uphill battle. So I really think we're at a good place where you can accept a new assignment. So I did that and I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico and, um, an incident happened there where, um, uh, a, a mass shooter right outside the gate went in and cleared house on the business that was right outside of my window. And wow. So when I saw the corner vans start coming in, it just, I got really hot flush. I didn't know what was going on. I was just kind of, I was outside my head, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, okay, well, I know what to do. I need to get help. Um, so I did that. I asked again. I started in therapies again. I started working with a service animal, Dallas, who helped me uh, get through it. Because I would dissociate a lot at the time. Hmm. Where I would, and what basically what happened to me was I would have so much trauma that I would have a thought come into my, everything was triggering. Uh, so, and I would have to finish that thought and then another one and another one and another one. And I would end up driving. I'd be a hundred miles from my home and not know how I got there. Much like if you ever had the experience of driving home 
showing up in your driveway and go, man, I don't remember the drive, mm-hmm. right? Because your brain goes on autopilot. I don't think it was a danger to anyone, but I was scared out of my head. How did I get here? Where am I at? You know, thank God for navigation apps because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't navigate I my way to. home because I didn't know where I was at. Right. Um, and that was scary. So Dallas would actually train to lick my neck at my exit. So she would help me get home every day. Saying, and the Air Force really, like I said, they supported me in that. They helped me get her. They helped me. They supported me through the training. They actually made her an honorary Air Force member, made her a staff sergeant. And that my command and leadership really just supported me uh, through that How process. How do you train a dog to lick you at the right exit? Well, it's it's just about conditioning, right? Wow. So my trainers would ride with me, and, and, and at certain cues, they would provide treats or this, that, and the other. But I was the one in charge of the training. It's just I was when I was driving, I couldn't. So we'd meet three times a week. I went through a nonprofit called Paws for Stripes, uh, and that was their number two. I was their first graduate outside of the founder, Jim Stanick. Uh, and... I still talk to Jim. I just talked to Jim the other day. So I still talk, have great relationships with those folks. They uh, helped me train her over six months uh, and it's just repetitive. That's just such a specific thing to train for. It's a, <laughs> well, that's, and that's it's hard, hard to imagine a dog going, okay, we're at this very specific place. Mm-hmm. Now I do yeah. this thing. I, I mean, you can train them. I mean, even for dogs that are, you know, blind assistance dogs, you can train them to like turn on light switches. You, you, it's, it's pretty specific, but that, it has to be. That seems easier to me. I don't know yeah. why. Uh, exit sounds hard. Yeah, yeah, target. <laughs> so um, she just would sense it. It's hard to explain, but I can tell you this. She saved my life a lot of times because she also would mitigate like my, when she would, um, she would actually hit cues to me, like rub up against me or growl slightly when I would, my cortisol levels or my stress hormones were up. Mm. That's the way it was explained to me. Mm-hmm. So that way I knew I had to put my hands on her. It's scientifically proven that when you pet a, an animal, stress goes down. So it's actually, uh, in my opinion, um, better than medicine. And I was always very adverse to any type of psychotropics or any type of uh, uh, medication-assisted therapies for my PTS. Uh, I am generally against it too, but I'd be curious why you are. What? Because I've seen so. I've seen on the other side. I've looked past the curtain. I've seen what happens when they're abused. I've seen what happens when overdose. I've seen it go and, to and other airmen yeah, and lead over- to addiction. I've seen it lead to death. You know, I've seen it lead to not necessarily those medications, but done incorrectly and abuse and addiction. It can be. So I just, I was one of those things that triggered me and scared the life out of me. I did not want to get on psychotropic drugs. Don't know that I had any, that it made any sense, but it did to me. So I would try any therapy that wasn't that. So that's kind of kind of what got me into the service animal. I, I would say my my concern with it has always been I won't know my own mind if I'm no longer in control of it. Exactly. And that worries me greatly. It's the it's the one thing I know I have in my head is is my own brain. Like mm-hmm. as soon as I start atrophying and, you know, having Alzheimer's or whatever happens when I get older, <clears throat> that'll be a very worrying moment for me. Sure. And I think they're for me too, you know, and like I said, I can't put one pinpoint on why, Mm -hmm. but I was, I was adverse even, you know, through that, I started getting better again, had an incident uh, with the service animal. I was kicked out of a restaurant, you know, uh, or tried to be police showed up. So now my dog was my anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I asked for help again and they sent me to treatment. 
they sent me to a program um, in a in a behavioral health center. It was called Freedom Care. It was uh, you know it was a program for addiction as well as uh, I didn't have I didn't su- suffer from addiction. So, but I, I did from post traumatic stress. So I went there for that. Um, it was a hospital. They treated me like a prisoner. Um, really, and that's what we see most in the industry: no shoestrings, no belts, single file lines. I mean, we literally had a cage. This is voluntary. Yeah, I was asking for help. We literally had a cage. I'm not kidding. They had a chain link fence outside with a chain link fence on top of it. That was where we would go to smoke. I was a smoker at the time, uh, you know. And thank God I'm no no longer. Three years, three years past that. <laughs> but man, I felt like a prisoner, you know. But I had a great therapist, and and she kind of was the one that was there and said, "Hey, you should really write your stories because I didn't feel worthy." If that makes sense. I was an Air Force guy. I didn't kick indoors. I just did my job. So I didn't feel worthy to be in the room hearing the stories of these heroes. Right? But then they would tell me, man, they would be in tears after hearing some of the things I would say. And I'm like, that doesn't compute. It doesn't resonate with me. Why? And he goes, man, I wouldn't trade places with you in a million years. that Those words put together from that person saved my life literally Mm. because I was like, okay, I do deserve this. And my therapist told me, you know what? Your stories have impact on others. You should really write them down and put them in and publish them because even me, as I've heard, I've heard a lot of things and some of the things you've seen will help others because they can say, Hey, you know what? If he can see that, then I can too. So then that's when I started really leaning into it. Uh, when I got back from treatment, I sat down and I wrote that thing in 30 days. I hand wrote it. I just was on a mission. I would stay up to four or five in the, in the cause I couldn't sleep anyway. <laughs> so I might as well, you know, the <clears> air <throat> force <throat> at that time, the air force had kind of, in my opinion, given up on me. You know, I have nothing but great things to say about my time in service. I mean, it was, it, it is what it is. I had support up until the very end when I could no longer do some of the things they wanted me to do. And then I kind of felt that I said, why don't you just work from home? No one gets to work from home. Right. Back then. Right. I, w- I felt I would come in and they were like, are you new? I'm like, man, I've been here for three years. <laughs> right. So at the very end, I felt kind of, you know, I was going through the med board process. I was over 20 in s- years in service. So I could retire anytime I wanted. And I, you know, so they medically retired me, kind of forced my hand after 20. Uh, and I, and a lot of our warriors feel that way. Right. They feel thrown away after service, you know, especially when you're dealing with addiction. I was just lucky that I didn't fall into that category because it could have very easily happened. Sure. Uh, And that's, you know, wrote the book. I started, you know, going out on tours as far as, you know, just trying to get, you know, and I've had so many direct messages from people saying, man, it's helped me. Thank you. Mm. Like, and I had a, I had a guy and I won't mention his name, but he, he messaged me several years back and he was a police detective and he worked, uh, in, uh, child, you know, sexual crimes. He had a hard job. Yeah. And he had told me that, you know, there are times when I have, instead of picking up my gun to end my life, I picked up your book and I read it again. He goes, I'm still here. And that's the why. Wow. That's the why the universe drove me to to put this on pen and paper and to put it down and, and kind of why it's still going because people are uh, 
know, they, it resonates with them. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not a detective, but I did used to run a anti-child pornography uh, hacking group, actually. And I got to tell you, I totally resonate with whatever that cop was going through. Like, it is, you see a handful of things you just cannot unsee. And yeah. there's just no, there's no coming back. Like yeah. Once once you've. And once, once it's in it, there, it's in there. It's stuck in there. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, you, at one point in your book, you talked about um, this watch. Um, would you Would you tell us that anecdote? Sure. So, you know. I believe I was talking about Dover Port Mortuary. And if I remember correctly, the we were it was actually a different time when we would go down and just tour. I didn't work out of the Port Mortuary out of Dover, but we did go down as part of my job as a combat readiness instructor at the Red Horse Squadron. My uh, We were down there training at Fort Dix. As Fort Dix at the time, it's, uh, it's Joint Base McGuire-Dix now. Is, uh, but... So we said, hey, let's take a day trip up to see the port mortuary because we train on this. You know, we train on how to um, do mortuary in the field. Uh, so we might as well see the location that we're sending the, from the casualty collection point downrange to. Um, we're sending our, our, our uh, an air, soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines home to. So we had, and I, so when we're ta- teaching a class, we can speak from a, a, a place of, of knowledge and understanding. Like, I've been there. So we walk in and there was a personal effects room and there was a, I believe it was an, a soldier that, um, that was being processed through at the time. Uh, and his personal effects were laid out being ready to be given to the family. And he had the same watch I did. And it's when it makes it personal. That's when you start to create, I didn't know him, but still, Wow. So we reflect as humans back on ourselves. That could have been me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it really affected in that moment. You know, that was just one of the things that started my uh, post-traumatic stress. It, I mean, it seems very odd. It seems it's like, how does that have a, but it was just one of those things that made it personal. It made it question my own mortality. <clears throat> And it was, um, and that was early on. That was before I started doing the actual mortuary gig full time. That was bef- the job before. <clears throat> that was when I was an instructor. And then, and then, why, <clears throat> knowing that that was coming, why did you say? Why did you go into it with that in mind? Because well, one, you was, already showed some vulnerability sure. to what was going to happen. One, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> in the military, that you're working here. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, I say that. Just, I mean, absolutely. I wanted a job that um, meant something. Uh, and I didn't feel I was getting that from working in the fitness center, to be honest with you. So when they said, hey, do you want to take on this unit deployment manager job and also have the, you know, additional duties of non-commissioned officer in charge of mortuary affairs for the base? I'm like, absolutely. Because I was one of the few people that had an open door policy to the wing commander. I could just walk in and say, sir, we had a death on base. Or Nine times out of ten, he would know before I did because the command post would brief him. But he would, what are we doing? What's the case? Because my commander was ultimately in charge of making the notifications. I worked for, you know, my commander. But I did most of the heavy lifting, meaning commander's not going to go down and, and review the body a lot of times. 
his 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 NCYC will. And then I will brief him or her on what we need to do as far as family and this, that, and the other. So I did the leg work. Mm-hmm. What was the camaraderie like amongst the other people working in the mortuary services? There's one per base. Just one? Uh-huh. So it was just me. And then I would try to train others in case I was sick or this, that, yeah, and the other. I was going to say. I mean, and the, the men and women I brought in couldn't do it. Um, I remember I brought in a good friend of mine. And he's like, "You ha- what? It's not for me. You know, and he just couldn't. And the tendency as leaders is when we find someone that's good at it and we don't have to worry about it, we just say, well, that's they're doing it. They kept me in it for six years, um, which – you know, at about the three-year point, I was done. Like, mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. Uh, I just can't see another body. And then that was probably 40 or 50 bodies. So you d- really didn't have anyone to even talk to about all this mm-hmm. stuff either. Not even. Because I was afraid of the stigma. Well, and also because there's no one else doing the job. <laughs> like, no one can really relate. Well, I did have a, a colleague that worked in the office with me. She actually uh, edited the book. Uh, oh. Her name So she did, like training she worked in the office and i had a team a couple of folks that worked for me but you never see she never bitched down right in the military you're not gonna i'm not gonna complain about my job to my troops right it's it's going up right and i work for the commander so (laughs) i'm not gonna go to the commander Mm -hmm. and complain because i'm a solid guy right i'm the guy that he can count on Uh, which was true yeah and 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 i loved that part of it i did so um, and it's just, I would, I would, she, we were the same rank. So I felt like we could confide. So I'd confided in her a lot and, and the things I've seen. And then I found uh, like uh, an objective party, my next door neighbor, Larry, uh, who you was, mentioned, you mentioned, yeah, book, he was, yeah. he would sit across the fence in Arizona, like the, you know Tim Tool, the tool, yeah. Tim the Tool Man. Yeah, right? He yeah. had the I forgot the guy's name. Yeah, but the no, guy I, I don't remember. That that. He would kind of yeah. you know, vent to, and and Larry got to hear my stories firsthand. I shared with him the things I wouldn't share with anyone. Um, uh, you know, he really helped me. He doesn't realize that he really helped me. Uh, and that, that, when I told him I was going to write a book, he's like, "Absolutely." You know, um, probably drank a little bit more than I should back then. Mm. Well, I don't necessarily ever think it went to the addiction phase but you know because i'd seen folks die from alcoholism so that struck a chord with me too mm. so but you definitely were abusing alcohol at i some think point. i was during the it wasn't just relaxing no, after a hard day uh, or something it was it was numbing hmm. it was so i understand right I, I get it and man it's i've lost so many brothers and sisters to this disease um you know, not only the addiction, post-traumatic stress, it's just, it. you go numb after a while. You're like, another one? I mean, at the time I wrote the book, 22 warriors a day were killing themselves. Think about that. We should be as upset as a nation about that as we are anything. About anything that's going on. That should be on every single bill, every, in my opinion. You know, every 17 hours, a law enforcement officer kills himself. That's a national tragedy. And these are the men and women that swore to protect our communities and our country. Yeah, we're okay with 22 at the time. I said the number now, if we count 
like, um, and these statistics are just some things I've read. So I don't have any facts in my hand right now in front of me. Um, So they may be a little off, but if we counted overdose deaths into that number, somewhere around 45 from what I understand, that's a national tragedy and kind of why, you know, I really want to, why I do what I do now at Warrior's Heart um, and, and try to help with addiction and post-traumatic stress. <clears throat> That's one every couple of minutes. Yeah. That's crazy. It just, it blows my mind. It really does. And, you know, we, we leave the service and there's a lack of purpose, right? It's just over. Here's your bag of pills. Go be broke somewhere else. That's how a lot of us feel. You know, we go from very big jobs, very um, a lot of people at a relatively young age. I retired at 40 years old. You know, I'm half of my life left. What do I, what do, I do now? You know, I'm like, well, I'm going to take off. I'm going to go fishing every day. I'm going to, you know, do whatever I want. Sounds, sounds romantic. It's not. It's horrible. It's devastating. Yeah. We stop moving. That's when we cease to exist. So my, my big thing a day was waiting on the mailman to get there. Like when he or she showed up, boom. Didn't matter if I got junk mail or not. I got to get up off my couch and walk down the street. And if they didn't show up, I was devastated. And then I would feel like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so you need to get some purpose. That's right. And, you know, the book was really Bipolar, if I mean, you know, it was very high highs and very low lows. Yeah, there's some funny moments in there. But I'm talking about just the after effect of writing the book. Oh, really? So I would be in one, I can very point to a very specific weekend. One weekend I was asked to come to LA, red carpet event, all the celebrities there. Terrell Owens read my bio. It's me, Rob O'Neill, who the gentleman that's attributed with killing Bin Laden, and a, a gentleman who's now passed, Chris Carlisle. And he was a, Three part, uh, he had three purple hearts. He was a very high decorated Marine. I did not deserve, it was rare air. I did not deserve to be in that company, mm-hmm. but they saw it fit that I deserved to be there. And <clears throat> so I was there, red carpet, tuxedo, my wife, they, they brought in makeup artists. I mean, it was a big deal. And I got to tell my story on stage and they, they awarded me an award. Uh, that Monday, that was a Friday, that Monday I was working, I was a garbage man. And I was working in the, there's nothing wrong with being a garbage man, but I felt honest work. It is. But I I felt I was in the landfill and that's kind of where I fell. I felt, what have I done? Why is, you know, I just had this really high ascension moment. And now here I am, you know, just barely getting by trying to make ends meet. I couldn't, a lot of times I couldn't pay my light bill. I had a foreclosure. I had, all of these financial woes, how am I going to protect my family? You know, my wife was going through a lot of depression at the time as well. Uh, you know, our kids are getting older. What do we do? So it's, it's, it's been a roller coaster. But like I said before, I've also had so many people message me privately and say it's helped me. So it needed to be written. Um, I've had some criticisms. Or actually, you know, I shouldn't have uh, taken certain liberties or written. I, I try to really protect the people who are in it, like changing their names. None of the people's names are in it. I'm not going to ever point back to someone actual because I felt, you know, I didn't want to disrespect them. Uh, but these are the, this. I wanted the reader to feel like they were walking next to me. Out of curiosity, what kind of criticisms did you get? 
from some of the folks in the field that it's hey you, you open the curtain hmm. why would you do that like, you know um you're profiting off of the dead or something like that you know and, i did not get that impression at all yeah and well i mean i can uh, for the profit thing <laughs> there's I can tell you this. Most people, you know, they, I want to write a book someday cause they think it's going to, I feel they think it's going to make a million dollars. Yeah. It's not, it isn't. It is. Authoring is, you have to love it. Yep. And that's it. What it has done is opened a lot of doors. I wouldn't be sitting here with you if it weren't for the book. I wouldn't probably be, have the opportunities I have at warrior's heart if it wouldn't have been for that, because you know, that's, what gets me in the door a lot of times people are like, Oh, I've read your book mm-hmm. and it helps me to be able to, it's put me in a place where I can help so many others, which is what I think I was intended to do. We talk at warriors heart about shadow careers, right? Like what were you meant to do? What did the universe have in store for you? And for me, I think it was to be working at warriors heart, helping warriors find healing. Mm. <clears throat> So I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of the technical aspects of the job because mm-hmm. I think that was really interesting. By the way, I don't normally read people's books. Um, I don't, it's not a meant as a disrespect. It's just very hard for me to read books. Mm-hmm. Um, a, uh, sometimes the language is a little bit uh, uh, odd for my brain to process for whatever reason. It just takes me half an hour to get through a single page. I'm just sitting there. I'm trying to read this thing. It's not going anywhere. Uh, so I do better with audiobooks if I'm gonna if I'm going to read quote unquote. Um, but both your language was easy to process, which was good. Um, but also it was a very quick read. I did the whole thing. And for me, very quick time, I think two days, um, got through the whole thing. There's, it's unheard of for me to get through a book in two days. Um, so, but one of the things I thought was interesting was how many, I have to basically reconstruct this situation. Like, like they were wearing a uniform and they had, you know, these medals and whatever, and you have to go over to a library of medals and go find the right medals and put them on this person when they might be lost in the field somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really kind of odd and interesting um, how how delicate that process actually is where you have to know all of this stuff mm-hmm. about this this victim. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I, like I stated before, the Air Force goes to very the service actually all services goes a very detailed links to make sure everything in the, any human remains transfers is treated with dignity and respect. Uh, this is the ultimate sacrifice. We all signed a, ch- a blank check that may cost us our lives when we raise our right hand. So, you know, to defend and to support and defend this constitution of the United States of America. And it may cost us our lives. We know that no matter what job we do, mm-hmm from cook to combat medic. Yeah. It all matters. It all matters. So, you know, when that person has paid that price, we want to make sure that it's perfect, that we will put no more grief on that family and, or their friends. And it matters that their uniform is correct. It matters that they're wearing socks and a casket and shoes and that it matters that their hats on correctly. So it just matters. And that's why we do it. And why I wanted to detail that because the the details matter. And especially in in those times when someone's the worst day of their life, you don't want to add to that. Absolutely. 
The other one that I thought was interesting was <clears throat> you do autopsies, um, look for explosives. Um, I wasn't exactly sure when you were talking about that, if you meant someone had stuffed the body with explosives or whether they just had explosives on their body from, from the combat, or maybe it's both. I'm not entirely sure. Well, when sure they come mean. back to the port mortuary in Dover, there is a uh, metal detector in case they have any unexploded ordnance on them. They may have been hitting with a roadside bomb that had shrapnel in it and that be embedded deep into the, into the remains. So that those folks there would absolutely look for that. Not necessarily in my role, but that was a part of that role at, at Dover that they would yeah. run them, you know, the EOD men and women would run them through an x-ray to make sure there was no unexploded ordinance on the remains because they're going to take all anything off of, you know, gear and field gear off them at the casualty collection point downrange. They're going to inventory that and, and uh, you know, a lot of times dispose of it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to reuse, uh, you know, body armor or something like right. that from someone that's uh, been critically injured. It's just not what we do. Um, so they're going to look for that. They're going to x-ray. They're going to, you know, whatever way they're going to do autopsies. Every service member on active duty gets an autopsy no matter what cause of death it's it's they do so and even if it's done with a what, civilian what's the uh, what's the idea behind that well cause of death you know i just there may be contributing factors to just you know even when it's very apparent i've had pushback from coroners and be like man he shot himself it, the cause of death was that i don't need to do an autopsy and we were like you have to so hmm. um it just it is a policy that every active when I was in things may have changed. I've been out 10 years plus. So I kind of doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but when I was in, it was a policy of the federal government that every service member that passed away, no matter what the cause would get an autopsy and potentially pick up like explosive dusts or, you know, potential other things that might be useful for forensics down the, down the road. It could. And, and one of the things too, is they could also really kind of make up what I understand, you know, they can see, give that information to Intel. They, they saw this, this, and then that way that they're the manufacturers of body armor and just that and the other can improve their products. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. So maybe they don't dispose of the body armor right away. They get a lot of photos of they, it. Sure. Well, they take, you know, ballistics off of it as yeah. well as, you know, what happened to the remains, you know, that's valuable information because you know, the, the goal is to not have that. Right. So right. how do we make it better? Right. Yeah, and then similarly, fingerprint and dental scans as well. Um, I'm assuming a lot of that is to make sure you have the right person um, as well as... Well, war war is a hard proposition, right? And a lot of times you may not have remains that is fully intact. So uh, that's just part of the... I mean, there's a lot of times when there's not a full soul there. Mm -hmm. It may just be parts of a remain. So they're going to do what they can. Uh, I know the pilots get actually footprinted because they wear the uh, flame retardant boots. Mm-hmm. So sometimes maybe that'd be the only thing that they could find left or, you know, so we're going to always, we may have co-mingled remains, several people that we want to make sure that we're not putting, you know, right. A certain, you know, someone's hand with someone's torso that doesn't belong. Right. So they're going to make sure they do those DNA analysis, fingerprints, dental records, whatever they can gather to make absolutely sure that that is who they say it is. And you actually have to gather these body parts. I mean, 
the, the amount of work that goes into getting them off of a road or whatever after an IED goes off, let's say, or, you know, a airplane crash, let's say, or whatever. I mean, there's, there's a team that has to go in. Absolutely. Search and recovery team typically. However, downrange, a lot of times it's the men and women that are serving right next to them. So we didn't talk about complex traumas coming home, right? Not only did you just watch your buddy die, but now you got to pick up his pieces and send him home. You say you said there are things that get stuck in your head that just don't. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. How do you know? I've, I've when I was downrange, we had a there was a time we actually had to retrieve remains out of the steering column of a, after an IED, and I'll never forget. You know, it didn't look like anything but gray matter, but it was. That was somebody, mm-hmm. and that stays with you. The the sights, the sounds, the smells, smells especially. I would I went through a period where I would suffer with olfactory hallucinations, where I would smell bodies anytime I had my uniform on. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about just feeling like you're losing your mind when you know there's not a smell there, but you can smell it, and it's to nauseum. You're just like. I want it to stop. Yeah. And no doubt people can't see that. And that's the thing about post-traumatic stress or any of these, they can't see it. So they, they attribute it to weakness. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like a weak guy. And if you look at me, you don't say that's a weak guy, but I feel like one when I I'm smelling dead bodies in my uniform, I can no longer wear my uniform. I can't do the job I signed up and agreed that I would do for this country. And that's what a lot of our men and women come home and make that ultimate wrong decision and in their own lives because they feel weak. Mm-hmm. They feel no purpose. And and that's kind of what we do at Warriors Heart is help them regain that purpose. Well, one of the things I, I got from your book that I thought was really interesting was that you kind of it's not just a senseless job in the sense where you're just grabbing some body parts, which I mean, not to, not to say this in a crude way, but it's just meat and bones at this point, right? You're also providing a very important service to the people who are left behind. And it seemed like you took a huge amount of pride in reducing their suffering. Um, And that I thought was really compelling. You know, it's, it's not, it's not just a, a mechanical function. You actually have to talk to these people and give them some very unfortunate news about what you could or couldn't do for them and the, and the remains. I mean, sometimes it's probably not going to be such good news, you know, um, on top of the already horrific news, you know, um, I thought that was really interesting. That pride you put into that. Well, for me, it was compassion. I wanted them to be, you know, I would always put myself in their shoes. How would I feel if I just lost a wife, a husband, a, a son, a daughter? How would I feel in that moment? So I always wanted to make sure that I treated everyone the way I would treat my brother, my, my blood brother, not just the guy serving next to me. But and and I tried to take that into the job, and I try to, and that's one way it made it a little easier for me because. I, the higher good, right? Had had a purpose and it was to make sure that they didn't have to carry any more pain than they're already carrying. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time was carrying all that weight would have a mental effect on me that was crippling uh, for a lot of years. 
Um, and you know, I still pride myself when I do a job, I want to do it that way. I want to do it to the very best of my abilities. Um, so that's why I did it that way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to really put a personal touch. I didn't want them to have to suffer anymore. They've suffered enough. Um, you mentioned something about not giving any promises effectively, not, not saying you could do something that you couldn't do. Yes. Um, I've always lived by that motto personally, <clears throat> as long as I can remember. I refuse to promise something to somebody that, uh, um, that I know there is a, even the slightest chance that I would not be able to mm-hmm. to follow through. In which case, basically, I never promise because there's always a caveat. There's a well, what if I get hit by a truck? Obviously, I wouldn't be able to yeah. do this thing I promised, right? Um, but I think that that was interesting to see you do the same thing because. <clears throat> sitting on the other side to this, you know, I just lost my brother, my son, my whatever. Right. Um, <clears throat> it would be very traumatic on top of the normal trauma associated with that to believe something is going to be taken care of the way you expect it to be taken care of. And then all of a sudden not, but you did occasionally say you would do things that, you know, ended up being an, an enormous amount of stress on you to accomplish. Well, like I said, I always try to go that above and beyond. And I didn't want to make any promises that I couldn't keep. Because for me, integrity is part of my core values. Uh, You know, in the Air Force, that's our three core values. Integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. So always just be honest, even when it's hard. One of the reasons that I wrote about in the book that I really had a, a moment that really kind of crippled me as far as uh, when I'm dealing with this, I had a, a friend pass away, uh, a close acquaintance and uh, his wife was in the accident that happened, but she was, she, she made it. And she asked me, was it, um, and I still struggle with this, but she asked me if it was quick and I told her it was, and it wasn't. Uh, and it, it really, you know, and, and so I was in battled with my core belief. Like I was in this struggle and it just recently I was able to process that. It, while we we're at Warrior's Heart, we were doing some, cause we won't do any therapies that we haven't been through ourselves. Like we won't try any new stuff or, you know, we're not nothing experimental. No, there's these men and women. We have scientifically backed therapies. We're not, but we're not going to go out and say, Hey, let's try this out on our warriors. No. So a lot of time, a lot of things we do are working with the staff because the better we are, the better we are at helping them, right? So we were going, we all. If you're coming, if you're working there, a lot of times you're going to bring your own stuff to the any anywhere you go. So uh, we were working on this uh, therapies, and one of the things, um, this therapist or my colleague who was happened to be a therapist, we were talking about, and she said one of the things that you struggle with, and I shared that with her that I still struggle with that. And she looked up and kind of to the left. She's like, well, let me get this straight. What were you, why did you tell her that it was, um, you know, quick? That's why I wanted to spare her feelings. She goes, do you think that was honorable? I said, yeah. She goes, then therefore it met the definition of integrity. Because you were doing something honorable. And I'm like, okay, well that, 
So I was able to kind of process that. Wow. Still don't feel great about it, but I don't go to bed and dread about it or wake up just like, ah, I'm such a horrible human. And I wasn't able to see that through my lens for so many years. I mean, you're talking, you know, this happened in 2006. <laughs> in yeah. 2022, I'm just finally processing. And you're, you're talking, that's not, I mean, we're talking Vietnam veterans that still have things that they haven't processed because they were told to, uh, you know, throw their uniforms away. They get spit on. Don't share your service. Uh, and we're just now seeing some of those folks willing to accept or ask for help and accept help. And you're talking decades of trauma that needs to be impacted. And God knows what they did to themselves between then and Absolutely. now. Absolutely. A lot of years of, of hard living. Mm-hmm. Hard living. So you were several things at the same time, which is even weirder, because your book barely touches on this fact. And I thought it was, in my mind, I'm trying to process. You were running the gym effectively. I, I don't know what the fitness thing looked like in practice. Um, and this, or another, at another point you were running basically all of the food for the entire base, you know, second in command for the, everything on base, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of logistics and supply issues. And I'm sh- sure it's not a particularly exciting job, but it's a job. It's yeah. a full-time job. And then <laughs> punctuated by this very strange, totally different thing. Like, how did you kind of cycle between those two tasks? I mean, how did how do you process that? Well, I mean, thank heavens that mortuary doesn't happen all day, every day. Mm-hmm. So my primary job a lot of times was, when I was stateside, it was unit deployment manager. So my job was to send out buckets of warriors, different, get them trained to make sure they're, and then ready for war. We would have one go and one come home. And then we would just cycle out. So that's a lot of how we did the buckets back in uh, the early stages of this current conflict. Uh, you know, after Desert Storm and on, right? We would do um, different, you know, they would basically double staff everybody and then one out, one in. Mm-hmm. And he would, you know, spend a year home. Year, you know, sometimes deployments in the Air Force were six months, as, as short as three months, as long as six. We never, you know, the Army a lot of times went 12 18 months. We never did in my experience. So when I wasn't doing that, it's when I did the mortuary. But when I was deployed, they didn't have a deployment manager because we were deployed. So I would have to be in other parts of my career field. And I had mentioned that it's pretty eclectic career field cook. So I did a lot of logistics because I had a lot of operator training. So I would drive the big forklift. So I, at one point I was in charge or second in charge of the the ration warehouse where all the food would come in and, and we would manage that and give it out to the different chow halls. Uh, and then another time I worked at the fitness center, you know, <laughs> running, running the, these uh, things are so different. Yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's whatever the, uh, whatever the air force needs. Jack of all <laughs> trades, man. And it's, but it made you really well-rounded for yeah. some, to get it ready for your civilian careers when you yeah. left the service. Cause yeah, that's right. You can just about work anywhere. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, you know, that was teased the jet engine mechanics because they were like, I have such a, I get to work on A-10s. I'm like, yeah, but when you get out of the service, there ain't any A-10. <laughs> so you're going to have to work at Lockheed or you're going to have to yeah. work at Delta and that's it. Yeah. But at the same time though, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. It didn't, I didn't have a lot of time for, for boredom because 
just when you got the hang of it, they'd move you into a different rotation or a different look. And you could, and you could always request it. You didn't have to turn the same wrench for 20 years. Yeah. How does that work? How do you just to say like, I'm bored with this job. Can I have another one boss? Like, Basically that- go into your, 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 because our, like our how flight well, chiefs, how well does that work? <laughs> not, not, not well. <laughs> they want, they want, you know, yeah, they want rhythm. They want it. Yeah, their, sure. their efficiency. But one of the key opponents to be a leadership in that career field is being able to get folks on board. Cause no one, and I mean, no one that I've ever met is excited about being a chef in the air force or a cook. Right. I've never met an airman that came. Not to a lot said, of creativity in that. Job. I can't wait. Actually, I, there was one, there was one guy and he wanted to be a, a chef on the outside. So there was, okay. he was like the anomaly. Okay, right. Okay. But most people are like, I didn't sign up for this. This is bullshit. I don't, you know, I'm nobody's cook. I want to be out there doing, wearing flight suits and being, you know, do the cool stuff. Uh, so, Hey, guess what? Not only do you not like your job, but you get to work 12 hours a day and you only get to eat what everybody else doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. That's cool, right? <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. So they eat after everybody else uh, and then whatever's oh, left. wow. We're not going to, and you're not going to go cook more just for. Right. So it's like, hey, no lunch break. You didn't get, everybody else got to go off site for lunch, go to lunch, not the cooks. They stay there and continue to cook. And it's a lot, long day. Some some rotations we would do like, uh, you know, twelve hour days. Some would do ten. It just depends. Um, and I'm sure it's hot and. And when you're deployed, you're talking six days a week, fifteen, sixteen hour days, because you're feeding a large. When we were in uh, Prince Sultan Air Base, we fed five to six thousand, I think. I mean, and you're talking just you would not imagine how much bacon that is. <laughs> it's. <laughs> truckloads i mean people joke a lot about the food in the military but how is it i mean in the air force it's i mean they would any i think any branch would tell you it's pretty top notch really yeah the navy also has a really good uh chef corps Mm. but i will tell you the navy is trained by the air force (laughs) (laughs) they all train at lackland it's here in san antonio interesting yeah well they did like i said i'm speaking from 10 years ago when i was in the service sure what they've done since then, I do not know. Well, I think food is just such a morale builder. I mean, skimping out, if you don't have to skimp out, I mean, we're already throwing billions and billions and billions of dollars into the military budget. Add a couple extra thousand and give them something nice, yeah, you know? Exactly. And, and you know, they really tried to do that. Um, I know our our commanders were always were like, when we were downrange, we always had like steak on Friday nights and, and lobsters. And they want, if we could, yeah. you know, if we were in a, and a and, and location that would we could get that supply in sure, sure it, you know um we would always try so the the marines that would come through on r&r they're like yay i'm at an air force base you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I get to eat good uh, right? yeah so yeah 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 i've i've known a lot of marines mm. they do not speak kindly about their their food no. <laughs> but man i will tell you this I, I spent a lot of time making fun of marines because i have one that i work with closely with but I'm going to, we, we go back and forth. Those are the most, the salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. A United States Marine. There's nothing like them. Yeah. Yeah. I got a soft part in my heart for him. Um, I was curious how, and this dovetails into the food as well. Like how does religion play into this whole thing? Like people get special accommodations for food. Um, how does that work in the mortuary services? Well, we always try to be cognizant of the religious preferences, you know, um, 
in the mortuary side, we would just have to really rely heavily on the family. But yeah, they, on the on the food side, I mean, if they had halal meals or if they, you know, they were you know certain dietary needs, they would they would accommodate. Um, we we mm-hmm. could make special meals for them for sure. And is that does that trickle all the way down to MREs? I mean, uh, yeah, there is halal MREs. There is uh, you know um, kosher kosher MREs. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. You have to some of the, the those special ones you have to like refrigerate differently or, or store. You can't just store them in open pallets in a, in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. And they have a much shorter shelf life than a, I think an MRE is eight years. I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned at one point um, that I thought this was a very strange thing I had never heard of. Um, people turn uh, their loved ones into jewelry, like the 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 hip replacement that they had or or their gold teeth or whatever they'll turn it into jewelry like how common is that not very common okay yeah i, I just i'd heard stories of it i haven't ever actually seen it so yeah, yeah be, but i'd heard story because um when you know it was kind of shocking to me when we were doing a cremation how much metal is in well in this particular one that we were yeah. working on and i would ask them more you know because I had no common experience with that. So I would ask the, the funeral director and she's like, yeah, some people do that. And you know, that was her experience. I was just sharing it through her mm-hmm. eyes, but yeah, I, apparently that happens. Wow. It's, I think that's bizarre. I don't, yeah. I just, I can't see wanting to wear someone's hip on my, exactly. <laughs> so. well, I mean, it's, it's precious metal a lot of times. So, yeah. you know. and, 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 you know, people memorialize people differently. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, and a lot of times it's cultural. Um, I, I've gone to a Hispanic funeral when I was working and it was different for me because I just didn't have that experience. You know, um, they, they, they put a lot of things on the body, pictures and, you know, mm-hmm. in the casket uh, where you don't do that where I, where I come from. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cultures, it's a celebration of their life and other cultures, it's, it's grieving. So it's just a different. And I think that's part of what comes from that. Is there any kind of manual for this? Or are you just kind of figure it as you go? You got to figure it out. Wow. Just be open. Just be, have an open mind and compassionate heart and you'll be fine. I feel like there needs to be a book written about this for the following NCOs who have to do this, yeah. you know? Jeez. Like what? Because I know there's some. Well, we all go that, through a training course. We do. Uh, okay. Uh, it's here. At, it was here at Lackland. I think they've moved it. Uh uh, but we would, uh, if you're going to do that job, you have to go through a two or three week, I believe. And don't quote me, it may be longer or shorter, but uh, a course, uh, pretty in depth classroom and hands on for like cultural, um, all that they covered all, this is what you're going to see. These are the expectations because we cannot afford to get it wrong. Yeah. Just can't, uh, not only will, I mean, congressional inquiries or this, that, and the other, you just don't want to get it wrong. How would you feel if, if some, so Some give me an example. Messed up your your husband's funeral. So, yeah. So give me an example. What what has gone wrong that uh, has been noteworthy? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, just folks not, I mean, you know, not handling certain things delicately. For example, maybe someone had some adult material at their homes, and you just don't want to put it in a box and send it to their house, uh-huh. and grandma gets it. You know, so, I mean, those are kind of things you have to think about, you know, um, there, I mean, there's times when they want that stuff. I don't, you know, but you just have to be very delicate in that. And also doing what you say you're going to do. You know, if, if, 
if they say, you know, we want an open casket and you can't provide that because of X, Y, and Z, you need to set the expectation what they're going to see before because <clears throat> it's not who they were. That's not their loved one anymore. It's the, it's the, it's the vehicle they were riding in mm-hmm. basically. And sometimes it doesn't look great even after the best makeup artists. So just setting the expectation. If you, if you just didn't share that with them and they went into that and they were reviewing the remains post-mortem before the funeral, it could be very shocking. Mm-hmm. It could leave an, an indelible impression on their soul. So just trying to be as honest with them as possible and say, listen, this is not Jimmy or Bob or Billy. It's it had a lot of trauma. We did the very best we could. This is what you're going to see. And my recommendation would be that we put a photo up of when he was happy and do close casket. But it's ultimately up to you. And I think people will appreciate your honesty in that moment Mm -hmm. to be, you know, spare them the grief of having you make a recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm reminded of a conversation I get, I think it's just because of who I am. I get involved in a lot of <clears throat> emergency situations where people really, really, really need some serious help and <clears throat> they don't know who to call and they know me. And so uh, this one particular case, this guy had died and they're going through this person's phone and you know they, they kind of locked themselves out at one point accidentally. And then it was sort of like, well, we want the photos. We don't know what's in the photos, but I'm sure there's nothing in the photos. I'm like, look, <laughs> You know, he's a single guy, um, you know, he's red-blooded American, you know. I am positive there's something in there that you could use to hang this guy, and you got to give him a little bit of grace, you know. Just expect that there will be something in there, and, and then you won't be surprised, mm-hmm. you know. But they were, they were like, okay, and I think their initial reaction is, you're an asshole for saying that about our precious person who would never make any terrible decisions in his life. And then gradually after the conversation kind of progressed for a few minutes, I think they relaxed and went, yeah, that's probably a, a wise thing. You know, yeah. we should probably treat it. Look, you know, it's like reading someone's diary. You're going to find a lot of things that you didn't know about them. Yeah. You know, being honest, I think always will resonate with them. But like one of our founders, Tom Spooner says, you don't have to be brutal. People say brutal honesty. You don't have to be. You yeah. can be compassionately honest. Mm-hmm. Listen, this is what's going to happen. Uh, and come from a place of caring and love as opposed to just like, well, that's the truth. And that's, you know, you know I'm going to smack you in the face with it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just your tone and, and just being a good human, man. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so one thing you wrote in your book, which I, I wondered how this would, this conversation would end up going uh, by virtue of it, is you said that you have trouble making eye contact. And I have not found that to be true at all in this interview. So what what's going on with that? So keep in mind, I wrote that in 2012. And okay. I've done a lot of, since I started working at Warrior's Heart, um, we do a lot of professional and personal growth healing with our staff. And I was, I've been honored to be able to be part of that. So they have helped me move past that. What, uh, was, what was the therapy for that, out of curiosity? Um, just... Self-confidence. Staring contests. Yeah, no. (laughs) I'm joking. Actually, yes. Really? It's called presence exercise. So a presence exercise is being able to be present with the person you're with, intently listening. Uh, 
So we will sit across from someone, we'll set our chairs across from each other, knee to knee. Mm -hmm. And it may be a colleague, someone that we're very familiar with or a colleague that we don't know a lot about. And our founders will say, go. And you have to just stare in their eyes for an undetermined amount of time. <laughs> it could be 30 seconds. It could be five minutes or longer. And what comes up for people is a lot of, some people are in tears. Other people are in, uh, in joy. Some people can't stop laughing. Mm. And what it teaches us, because I would always go down here, and then one of my good co friends and colleagues, Vonnie Nealon, she's one of the best therapists in the country, top 100 therapists in the, in the, in the country, mm. right? And uh, we, I was doing this. She said, she said, baby, why can't you look at me? And I shared with her what, and she's, and she helped me process it. She said, listen, let me just walk you through this. You are not your memories, you know? And, uh, she helped me with some self-talk. Self-talk has been huge for me, right? On how, you know, cause how we talk to ourselves ultimately is how we feel. And that's who we are. It's who we feel we are, but it's not true. Cause your inner voice, that son of a gun's a liar, <laughs> Right, it will tell you all the negative. But if you can integrate self positive self talk, it helped me get onto the. Um, it helped me move past that, and now I want to always keep the gaze. So I try to. I've tried to. This pendulum have swung mm -hmm. <laughs> so far to the other, because I, again, that would perpetuate the feeling of weakness. I couldn't even look another man in the eye. Kind of weak limb eye, right? Another one that we did that really helped me was we had to write down five things that we tell ourselves negative. I don't deserve love. You're not worthy. Whatever you tell yourself when you look in the mirror. Sure. And then I had a partner. So I'd have to then turn to them and tell them that not telling them that's what I'm telling them, but call them that like, you don't deserve love. You are not worthy. And that feels gross. I would never say that to my worst enemy. So then the, the, the moral of the story is then what business do you have saying it to yourself? Right. And then when we have, when we can put certain words together and get it and it makes sense. Ah, you have a, so those are the kind of things that help me move past that. That's amazing. I was kind of joking about the staring contest, but yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Present, I presence exercise. Uh, I remember reading somewhere, maybe I can't remember if it's a reading or I saw it on a show about it or something, but it, if you want someone to fall in love with you, you basically just stare in their eyes for an, one hour yeah. and they will fall in love or call the cops. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a creep here looking in my eyes <laughs> lovingly for an hour. <laughs> um, so another thing that came up in this book, I thought was kind of interesting is how you, you kind of had to like avoid people a lot. Um, like, like you had to drive around the base and like come in a different way or, you know, choose austere locations on base, um, kind of off the beaten path, you know, places people don't go because the psychological impact on them might be too great. You might actually affect morale on base beyond mm -hmm. just losing a comrade. It might, somebody who didn't even know what happened, all of a sudden they're in chaos. Yeah. So like I said, the Air Force goes to very great lengths to make sure that we protect the dignity of not only the remains, but the other. So if people come to see the mortuary van or whatever 
vehicle that we're driving going back and forth on the same route, psychologically, subconsciously, they're like, man, this cost is very great. And it is. Mm -hmm. But we need them to be focused on the mission that they're there for. So they would take different routes each time to make sure that we weren't, hey, there's another dead guy. You know, I mean, uh, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, same reason you don't put all the same career field in one tent. If you're, you know, and you get bombed, you took all your cops out. That doesn't make sense. So you put a cop, you know, a comm guy, uh, you know, whatever, all the different kind of eclectically mm-hmm. uh, in a different thing. So there's a lot of different rules for that. And one of them is to make sure you take different routes. Uh, so that it well, that makes sense for like IEDs or mm-hmm. you know ambushes or whatever, but but I, there was more to it. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't just. It was also tricking your own people. You know, <laughs> making sure they yeah. can't they can't ambush you by saying, "Oh, we found another dead guy." Yeah, and it's it's not good for morale. So yeah. keeping morale up downrange is very important. Yeah, I had kind of two separate threads I want to go down on this um, with you. For instance, one we could talk about. You have to, you have to be very nimble when you're having these conversations. So I, I, I think that's one thread we could talk about. But then the other is, you have to basically look at the situation and it's not just nimble, like getting around them and not seeing you or whatever. It's also like fully understanding all the ramifications of all the things that are happening and that moment and that could happen. So you have to be very forward thinking and not just like quick on your feet, but also planning way ahead of where you need to be. And that, that requires a very high level of intelligence to do both of those things because you're going to be confronted by whatever, right? Some grieving widow or, you know, the, the girlfriend comes in yelling in or whatever. I mean, you're going to have to be able to handle all the weirdness of families. <laughs> you know, it's not just, it's not just your weird family. It's, it's a roll of the dice, completely random situation you're going into, but then also planning for what they're trying to accomplish. They want to close casket. They want an open casket. They want to, you know, cremation, they want to whatever you have to be thinking wildly way ahead of this moment. And I don't know, did you ever process like how many things you have to keep in your head at the same time to close out one of these cases? Well, one of the things I did is I always carried a brief because this was my commander's job to brief the families. And I was there as a support agent. Basically I'm the man with the answers, but he was the one he or she was the one compassionately delivering this to the family members. They had already known that they had a loved one that would pass because their commanders, their husband or wife's commanders make that notification in the Air Force. Um, a lot of times you'll see someone knock on the door in the movies. It's a chaplain. So that would typically be their commander. And we come in with more of a benefits briefing. Like um, the personnel would come in and say, you know, this is the life insurance. And then we come in and talk about casketing and how the remains are going to be handled and what their wishes are. Mm-hmm. So the way we were nimble in that is just be honest. Don't promise anything you can't promise and be ready for those tough questions with an honest answer. And if you don't know, tell them you don't know. Like, you know what? That's a great question. I'm not real sure. Is it okay if I find that answer and get back to you and I'll get and always give them an answer and a date. 
I will have an answer to you by close of business tomorrow. Will that work? So I'm not saying, hey, I don't know and I'm a dummy. What I'm saying is I hear you. I'm compassionate to your concern, but I'm not sure of that answer, and I don't want to give you an answer I can't promise or mm-hmm. I can't keep. So that's how we would nim- be nimble in those things because a lot of times they would throw off-the-wall stuff at us and we're like, uh, that's <laughs> that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And to say to a grieving widow, that's above my pay grade, seems insensitive. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know what, that's a great question because it is because I don't know the answer. It's a great question if I don't know the answer. So let me find out. And then go find out, right? And that's that's where it takes the toll on you because your, your day's supposed to be over, but now I'm chasing this rabbit hole for a family member, which is my job. Mm-hmm. But whose family suffers? Mine. Because mm-hmm. I had a young da- daughter, I had a young son, I had a wife at home that was also military that had her own struggles, but I'm off chasing this this thing for this other family. So in essence, I've put, their family first and it my family suffered for it like in one case you were running around trying to find some some camera or something like yeah that particular case this 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 gentleman was an avid writer his family were they rode motorcycles he he liked the uh like the call them crotch rockets right Mm -hmm. but most of the family from what i understood were more like harley davidson type uh type riders and he had been on the phone with him that day telling him all about this mountain they had there. I believe it's called Mount Lemon. And he would gone up this winding trail up there and took the most amazing pictures uh, the day that he passed. So they wanted that last experience. And we couldn't find a camera in any of his personal belongings forever. And I just, one day it hit me driving home. If I was riding a crotch rocket, which I wouldn't have done, <laughs> just I'm a big guy so it's not, uh-huh. not something that you know really I'm a more of a Harley guy if I gotta be honest so where would I put it but I'd ridden enough motorcycles to know that there's only one compartment and it's under the seat I'm like I bet you he put it under the seat because he, he had all the gear on the Johnny Rockets the right helmet everything on the leathers there was nowhere to put it on his person so and that's eventually where we ended up on it. Went to the junkyard and took the seat off and there's the camera. I felt such a sense of relief because I was able to provide them that one last look into their son's life. Yeah. But that took me away from my own family for several days. That's that, that's that nimble, nimble thing I'm talking yeah. about. Just, I mean, what a weird thing to ask for. And also it, it, it could have been in a hundred places. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just happened to be that you found it, but it could have been. Yeah. Just I just didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to disappoint them any more than they already were. Like I said, it's the worst day of their life. The least I can do is try my damnedest to provide them a, even a little bit of comfort. You also have to be very even keel as well. It's not, you don't get to be emotional in the room or let on as little emotion as you possibly can other than just, you know, general, I'm sorry for your, your loss. And that's why the book is titled And Then I Cried. Because I had to be less than emotional. I had to be stoic. I had to be in the moment, present, that solid structure that they could count on, they could lean on, that would carry this weight. And then at the most inopportune time, my dam broke. And I cried uncontrollably. Um, And there was a lot of shame for me around that. Shouldn't have been, but there was. 
And that's kind of what the story takes you through at the end with my mother. Did anyone make you feel ashamed? No. Or was that just all self-driven? It's all self-driven. It's all, like I said, little voice. That that horrible person that lives inside of us <laughs> that tells us that we're not worthy or mm-hmm. weak or less than. Right? I think with the one thing I've d- t- discovered about the human condition that we all share is that little demon that lives inside our head that tells us how horrible we Quite are. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you had a uh, disassociation mm-hmm. you had, I think that's called disassociative fugue. Is that, that's, I've that, never heard it called that. I would just call, I, I would just tell my therapist I dissociate. So that's way I understand. It. <clears throat> there's several different, uh, doing some research on this. There's several different types, which I thought was interesting and worth talking about potentially. So that's the one where you, um, lose, a serious amount of time and don't know how you got there. That's exactly that example. Uh, then there's derealization. And this is where you don't believe what's going on is real. Um, it doesn't feel real, um, which is a very, um, very common version of this depersonalization where you lose your own human being, you're outside of your body, um, which is also a very common form of disassociation. You're floating a bunk above yourself or you're, you're seeing, you're seeing your emotions kind of play as if they're like on a TV screen as opposed to actually feeling them. Um, identity alteration, identity confusion, which are very similar. Um, alteration is you literally take on a new identity. Um, and confusion is like a beliefs, like you believe something that you normally wouldn't believe in. So these are all different forms of disassociation. How many of those do you think resonate Just the with one. you? Just the one. Where I would. So my experience is something would trigger me on the way home almost every day, no matter what it was. Somebody cut me off in traffic or, or I'd see, I can remember one very specific time where I saw like a little girl on the corner with her mom holding her hand and she tried to step off the curb and her mom jerked her back. Right. So I had to play out that memory that what worst case scenario, what if mom didn't grab her, she hit traffic and what would that look like? Why? I have no idea why this thought is running through my head. It was very, but then that would trigger something that I had seen Hmm. and I'd have to, think about that and I'd have to and then all the while this little voice in my head stop quit it knock it off you know and this took some time so when I would go through all of this this progression I would you know I would be there I'm driving I'm able to change lanes and this that and the other I'm and now I'm not I'm in Santa Fe I live in Albuquerque mm-hmm. it's like <clears throat> 90 miles away it's a better place <laughs> you ain't kidding <laughs> but and now I'm scared out of my head. What just happened? Not not saying I, anything bad about Al- Albuquerque. Yeah, no, yeah. Santa Fe is a beautiful place. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I loved I loved both of them, but it was man, it was just so like. And then how do I now put together moments of what I called moments of sanity to get back home? Because mm-hmm. what happens if this happens again? So it was exhausting. It was just mentally I would fall into bed, and then I would have a. Serious how often did this happen? Uh, it was happened two or three times a week, if I remember wow. at least, uh, at least, and just always scared on that edge of that diving board, right? That is it going to happen now? So I'd almost talk myself into it. Then, I, and you just feel like a crazy person. What, what, 
just out of curiosity, were you listening to any music when this happened or anything like? It wouldn't matter. What about if you're like on a phone, like call somebody? Yeah. Not that you would have called them about what your job's yeah, about, just just you know chatting or whatever. Yeah, I honestly don't remember. I I just know it happened quite a bit, and it was always that. So someone gave me an analogy once, and it made sense to me in this context. They say if you're driving, if you're skiing through a bunch of trees and you're like, don't hit that tree, don't hit that tree, that all you're focusing (laughs) on is the trees (laughs) instead of hit the path, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Don't dissociate, don't dissociate. And then I would just, it would happen. So I was focused on the wrong thing. So it didn't matter what was going on. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that if I was on the phone, I would be distracted enough to where I wouldn't have those, that internal dialogue. Mm. But it was exhausting. It was exhausting with that. And then, on, then, oh, let's add on some olfactory hallucinations when you have your uniform on. Let's add in the, you know, severe hypervigilance. Um, I couldn't have my back to a, a door, right? Even though I didn't have the typical career field that most people with high, extreme hypervigilance would have, like your police officer or your combat veteran. Right where they would be like super wary of any well, door. It makes work. sense, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, I, and and so I felt like I didn't deserve to have super high privilege. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to me in context now, but that's what I felt. So it, it, one of the things that it doesn't have to make sense: post traumatic stress disorder. Can when you can try to to listen, just suck it up. You got this, and you and all this. And, and then that's part of it, the, the, the positive self-talk, but your brain will do what your brain's going to do. And when you've had a se- series of traumas that every one of them is stuck in your brain and you can't, then those, those pathways, those neural pathways are wide open mm-hmm. and those other ones dim. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really easy to be in dysfunction than into function. So you had a pretty strong reaction to um, a suicide in particular that you mentioned. I'm assuming that was not the only suicide by any stretch that you worked. Um, how do you feel about suicide now? I have a much, I mean, it's 180 difference because I didn't understand it. I felt that it was selfish at the time and I only could see it through my lens of how it made me feel how it made the families feel or even what this person was going through. I hadn't been, you know, the years of, of working on my own trauma now, I'm empathetic to it. I just, I, I get it. I know it. I understand. And I just, you know, that's why I do what I do now is to stop the suicide epidemic that is plaguing our warriors in this country. Because, there is a different way. There is a, you can live a meaningful, you can be a confident sober warrior. It can happen. So I think we owe it to those that are watching us to live the very best lives we can. The very best. And whatever that means to you, mm-hmm. right? Because they're out there watching us. They're out there. And if we're out there doing the wrong things, then they're going to, you know, like, see, that's how I feel about it. So if I'm living a positive and doing the work every day 
then guess what? Maybe somebody will take my example and lead that, that, that way. So that's how I feel about it now. Just lead the very best life you can. And then, like I said, the ones that are coming behind us will see that and hopefully model that as opposed to the other. Mm-hmm. And know that it's okay to get help. I'm walking, talking proof. Yeah, I, I remember listening to some podcast um, where they were talking about we sort of categorize suicides in two different buckets, um, and we kind of don't realize we do it. There's the person who is just finished and tired of their life, and then there's the person who um, goes down with a ship and lets other people get on a boat. Both are suicides, yeah. um, and we treat them completely different. The act is effectively the same, though. Their life is over. And so I think I think that there is way more nuance there. And so I was, I was actually a little surprised to read that in your book, but I'm glad to see you have a, a, a bit more nuanced view. Not that I advocate suicide, sure. but, but also um, I think that there's a lot more going on there. If someone's incredibly suffering, like uh, physical pain, for instance, where does euthanasia uh, live in that? You know, yeah. sh- should they continue to be, have ultimate suffering? I mean, is that is that a quality of life? Um, you know, we we treat our pets with a certain amount of dignity and grace when they're clearly in pe- unbelievable, excruciating pain. They don't sure. want to be touched. They don't want to. You know, they're clearly at the end of their life anyway. You know, why are we? Why are we putting them through that? Um, and so, can't we imagine that we would want that pain to end? Or end in a quicker manner. Um, so there's, I think there's some nuance there, <clears throat> but um, yeah, I'd really, really, really like it if we could get ahead of the suicide epidemic. Sure. I mean, we're losing a lot of people and that's, um, I think that's incredibly unfortunate. Um, have any thoughts? I mean, is there anything that, yeah, I mean, that, that we could be doing as, as a society or? Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think that we've taken a lot, a lot of, steps, especially within the VA system of, you know, they're, they're creating these uh, community outreach and partnership coordinators. Uh, they're creating, they're putting teams to it. So one of the things, you know, the VA has a, not the best reputation, right? Uh, we work so with VAs, <laughs> we work with VAs at Warriors Heart all the time. And, you know, we want to, to be up, we want to be a force multiplier for the VAs when they can't care for the Warriors. I, I was going to say, I, my impression of the VA is, is, it's never been, this is a bureaucratic mess intentionally. It's more like a bureaucratic mess because the government tends to f- fuck things up all the time. And this just happens to be another thing that they fucked up. Mm-hmm. But not that the people are bad or the intention is bad or what their the services they provide are bad in, intrinsically. It's just that it doesn't, it's not as good as it could be. It could be sure. all be optimized. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that there's groups like yours and others that are augmenting them. Well, I think there's a definite need. You know, we talk about force multipliers, right? So when they can't provide a service at the level that we can, we're there for them, sure, right? And that's why we have to be private. That's why we, you know, um, we, we're not strung up by a lot, or strung up is not the right word, but we're not, you know, constrained by a lot of the things that they are, you know, the bureaucratic and the policies and this, that, and the other. We can treat the way we want, scientifically based, joint commission certified, we do it all the right ways above and beyond. So we want to be a force multiplier for those VAs to help stop this epidemic. When, you know, when a warrior calls for help, you know, I mean, our program now, 
there could be a way to get into our program because we need to grow it. So we, and that's what we, that's why we're growing more facilities because we have to be, be able to be a source for them uh, when they pick up that thousand pound phone and ask for help. Yeah. I, I really like that analogy. I went back and I, I realized it's a part of AA or, you know, different, different types of, um, uh, recovery organizations, I should say. I'm not exactly right. 12 step based. Yeah. 12 yeah. step uh-huh. based programs, but you know, I think there's probably other programs that use it as well. But I like that analogy, you know, it's, it just seems incomprehensibly heavy, you know, yes. like how, how are you going to possibly pick this thing up? And, and do you, do you feel like having picked up the phone that it really was, it, that it really did feel that heavy going into it? For me, it wasn't a phone call because I went into my doctor's office, but I had, you know, I had told my wife I wasn't being honest with her on how I was doing. I wanted everybody. I mean, that right there could have been the call yeah, to, to your for wife. For sure, it was. You know, it was tough. Yeah, and I, and I, and it resonates with me because when these warriors call us at Warriors Heart, they've exhausted everything. Now you're adding another complex element to it. These are servers. These are servants of their country, right? Not me. You go, right? They're the guys that go down with the ship, right? right. So now they're asking for help for themselves. Everything about that feels wrong right and it's against their training it's against who they are is in the fabric and now they're like i'm weak and i need help that's how they feel but it's not true the strong gets help you know we use the analogy always put your oxygen on first before helping others Mm -hmm. right so if you ain't got it on safety first exactly you can't can't help you're about to kill yourself that's you're breaking the number one rule (laughs) exactly you can't help anyone if you're not here yeah so when they do make that call, we want to be there ready for them with, with men and women that, that get it and understand. That's why we're warriors, healing warriors. You know, uh, 95% of our staff have some connection to the warrior class. It breaks down to about like 30% of our, our, our uh, staff is veterans. 9% is uh, in the law enforcement. There's a few of them that did both. them hard chargers that got out of the service and then yeah. wouldn't be a police officer or a firefighter. And then the rest have like a close family member that has served or is serving currently. So when they come to Warrior's Heart and they pick up that thousand pound phone, they are met with people that get them, that cultural competence that, man, you understand. If they come and talk to me, they're like, man, you, you did that? Okay, cool. I'm going to listen to that guy because he's, he's been there, right? Because the common thing we hear when guys go to get help in these other programs is they treated me poorly. They didn't treat me. These men and women deserve this respect and dignity. We shouldn't strip them of that. As soon as they walk in the door, right? They have served their country. They have served their community and they're still serving in a lot of capacities through helping nonprofits or whatever. And we're going to say, Hey, you know what? Take your belt, your shoestrings off, get over there, single file line, Shut up. We don't want to hear you. And that was kind of how I felt in my experience. And I don't, we don't want to do that at Warriors Heart. We're a 600 or 543 acre ranch in Bandera, Texas. Wow. That, That's you know, pretty, pretty big. Beautiful. It used to be owned by ConocoPhillips. So it's five stars. Mm-hmm. They get treated with dignity and respect. You know, we, we do it. You know, it's a 42 day program. Um, they get two counselors assigned to them. So a, a licensed chemical dependency counselor. We're going to work on the addictions. And then they have a licensed professional counselor. Mm. So in tandem, they're working on the traumas and the addiction. 
because 90% of the time, and don't quote me on that statistic, but you know, I think it's, it's pretty close. Um, when they do take the final act, they're under some type of influence of some substance. Sure. That would, that that makes sense. Um, they've medicated themselves as far as they can. Exactly. And when it stops numbing Mm -hmm. and your life is out of control, they're losing everything. What now? A lot of times they choose to end it. Right. We we would ask them not to and to give us a shot, and we're going to do everything we can to help you get back to that confident, sober warrior that we know you can be. Uh, so we're a training program. We're going to train up confident, sober warriors through therapies, group therapies, uh, elective programs. We have a metal shop, a wood shop. I was telling you about your sign here. Yeah. So we got to get one of these cut out for you. Yeah, I'd love so, that, actually. Uh, yeah, we have Great. You know, state-of-the-art equipment in there because we talk about purpose, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we've had men and women leave our program and then go compete in Forest and Fire on that TV show, you know, uh, because they found something that resonated with them. They're like, hey, I can do this, right? Or our canine program. We have a service dog training program on site. Do you really? Yes. We have uh, so 22 cool. uh, sp- spaces in our kennel. Um, it is only for our warriors though, because sure, yeah, yeah. there's a waiting list for service animals, a hundred thousand yeah. veterans long. I'm not even exaggerating. What? Yeah. So <clears throat> they can come through our program and uh, work with our, our, we have the best trainers and you know, that is, that is a long, being someone list. that is a handler that, that was a service dog handler for a lot of years to see this particular team that we've put together there turn service animals so quickly and such good service animals, man, I'm, I'm, uh, so we call her cash. Her name is Michelle Axemaker and she is the uh, canine kennel master. And she used to work. She was a zoologist. She worked at Tampa, uh, in the bush gardens training like lions and tigers. Mm. And then she went over to the Lackland canine Academy, which is the DOD training Academy. So we're talking a pedigree that you wouldn't believe. No, no pun intended, <laughs> but she's the best in the business and her, she's created a, a team there. So it's just a, a really valuable asset to our warriors and um, they can come to Texas and get their life back. Right. Warriors heart is a special place. When you walk on property, you feel it. Right. And you know, some, some great news. We're going to close on a property in Virginia. Oh, in, oh so you are expanding the 28th oh, of wow. April. Uh, so we'll start a new venture in Virginia very soon. I'm going down uh, next week to help stand the place up and it's, uh, going to be another 40 bed, 40 to 60 beds for our warriors to heal. So we're, you know, we see that, Hey man, we've got a waiting list. We need to do something about it. And our founders are dedicated to ending this, uh, suicide epidemic and the way we're doing. So are they from all over the place or primarily Texas or, well, Josh and Lisa from Las Vegas. I mean the, the people who come in. Oh, all over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, the line share come from Texas, mm-hmm. uh, but we get them from all over the country. We've had them as far away as Taiwan because we're starting to see a lot of the active duty force. You know, um, we just had uh, about 15 of the the special operations commanders come in tour because they're, they're pushing them back against that type of treatment I was telling you about mm-hmm. the beginning of the podcast, uh, that more, uh, so treatment shouldn't be punitive, and that's the way it feels in a lot of places, current state. And a lot of places are bringing on veterans programs. Thank you. I mean, it, I think we, we kind of led the charge there. That's awesome. But they're tracked programs, and that's a near miss, if I, if you ask me. That's Justin's opinion. When I say a near miss, it's like because when they're understaffed or anything like that, then 
they go into the general population and now you have a warfighter sitting next to an 18 year old that's upset that mom and dad made them come to treatment. Mm -hmm. Those two do not mix. Yeah. We need a, we need a community that that understands. So the more programs that pop up, you know, the better. So we're not in competition with any team. We just want it done right, right? right? So, because the only thing we're in competition with is this disease, and uh, to, to to and if we can, if what we're doing, because someone can go say, "Hey, we're going to do that too." Okay, great, let's go. Just do it the right way. So, uh, I'm kind of competing things I want to talk about first. While while we're still talking about the premise, the the actual physical uh, facility here, what kind of activities do they kind of engage with when they're when they're there? Absolutely. Well, if you, if I may, I just walk you through a day yeah, yeah, as sure. a warrior. So a warrior, yeah. they get up at zero seven hundred. They have a, a, a self-guided meeting, meaning that they, with our staff in the room, but they kind of, uh, they have leadership assigned and they'll go through their schedules. They'll get their dailies. Um, they eat breakfast. They get three chef prepared meals a day. And then they have an, a movement group at eight thirty. So that's either nature walk. We have 3.2 miles of nature trails, uh, some of them like to go, we'll get them, a, they have a, a vest and they go on a ruck march. <laughs> That's ruck. fine too. Some of them run, they grab sure. a canine and they go out in our pastures. We have two pastures. One is an exotic game pasture. So we have exotic animals from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And another is more of a, a hilly kind of a uh, little bit more challenging. Now, a warrior doesn't have to be in peak physical condition. I was going to say, some of these guys might be kind of injured yeah, or so whatever. So we're going to meet them where they're at. Uh-huh. So if they're going to go, but they may ride in our cart with us got it until they can do it some of i've seen guys do it in wheelchairs mm-hmm. uh, we work with people like the independence fund they're looking at getting us a track chairs for some of those more critically injured warriors because we don't ever want a warrior not to be able to participate yeah of course you know kind of mimic the military where we move in the morning pt right mm-hmm. so it may be yoga maybe mindfulness we have a thing called savers that we do from the miracle morning savers yeah what does that mean it's an acronym so and i'm put me on the spot here so <laughs> silence <laughs> affirmation visualization exercise always miss the r scribing is the s i think it's reflection but don't quote me i'm gonna look it up after this but, uh, 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 recreation I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um rest or relaxation reading reading it's there reading go. there you go so all of those things we we work through that in the morning and and then now they've been nourished their bodies have moved we go into the heavy stuff that's when we talk in the pts groups and the grief and loss so more of a group therapies for until noon from 10 30 to noon um then they have elective periods so they have some say so in their days so they get to choose with their therapist and their uh client relations specialists our direct care staff that works with them on just about everything um hey i want to do metal shop today i want to do wood shop i want to do cooking with chef or so they have from one to five so they can you know be pretty diverse in what they do in a day and they can try a different thing the next day. Yeah. Art. We have a really robust art program. We just built a, a brand new building and opened last week for art. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause we had them in a, in a temporary place and now it's a giant gorgeous art studio. Um, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can go to the gym, the pool, uh, they can go fishing. They can work with our equine horsemanship program. So it's endless. You know, we're looking at bringing on a garden, so, and some of them want, want to exercise. So they'll, you know, we ask them to do different things so that all of those different things. So if you just went through a therapy one-on-one session and you're really feeling it and it's brought up some things, what better way to go to the forge and just 
beat on some hot metal, right? Mm-hmm. Just right. Let's make something cool. Make something cool because mm-hmm. that rebirth from you know we take a tomahawk, we make tomahawks mm. from a railroad spike, something that's you know used to carry heavy loads, right, right. kind of feels thrown away, kind of like a lot of us, mm-hmm. but through pressure and a lot of different, you know, just really working there. on it, you yeah. can create something beautiful, and that kind of symbolizes your battles you've had mm-hmm. with trauma and the ones yet to come mm-hmm. so you know a lot of our things are done on purpose for a reason uh, it makes sense you know and then those times too we also do our one-on-one so each warrior has two assigned therapists like i said before a licensed chemical dependency counselor and a licensed professional counselor um, they'll see them twice a week each in an individual session and they also see them each in a mini caseload group so they may have nine uh nine or ten warriors in their group Alpha Bravo Charlie and those two clinicians lead that group. They'll just meet with those twice. So it's four Do they say the same groups throughout? Typically, okay. unless there's a reason to move, but it's very rare. So, and then so then that's two clinical touches each. So four touches a week. Now, when you think about the traditional treatment model, it's 28 days. That's what, and, and this is all designed on how insurances typically pay for treatment. Mm-hmm. 28 days, you get one counselor and you see them once a week. That's four times plus group therapies. Right. Um, we don't feel like that model works. So they're up to 24 touches with us mm-hmm. in their treatment iteration. Uh, so you're going to get a lot more therapeutic benefit with the, with, you know, scientifically backed treatment modalities. Uh, so do they, is it, um, <clears throat> they all enter at the same time, they all leave at the same time or are they just, no, it's rotating. rotating. So we have intakes seven days a week. So they can come into treatment at any point and they'll just, because we work on a uh, six week cycle. So wherever they enter is where they enter. And that's how we do it. Got it. So it's, it's amazing to see because, because they don't believe it at first because we meet every warrior with welcome home, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a hospital waiting room. It's a beautiful home that there our intake building is set in and our staff meets them with that. And we have to do some things like, you know, do a search right on there, but it's their stuff. So they get to help us with that. It's not something that we're doing that's punitive. Mm-hmm. Hey, we need to go through your things. Is that okay? Sure. People wouldn't mind holding up your, you know, and that's yeah. what we do. Yeah. It can feel, it can feel very punitive if you go in and you're waiting eight hours to see anyone and then let's go through, you know, and it just feels very cold. So, mm-hmm. Our goal is when they get there, we do give them a COVID test. We're the, one of the only facilities on the on the uh, country that has our own testing lab on site. Uh, so we, within 15 minutes, we can know. They'll, they'll start the process, and they're done. Do you also drug test them as well? We do, yes. Yeah. We do do UAs. It would be useful to know what they're on. Absolutely. Well, it helps us get levels, and then we know what medications that they may need because mm-hmm. we have a full medical staff. I was going to say, a lot of these people are going to be going through some pretty serious withdrawals. In yeah, that week we do have a detox so. on site, too. Yeah. And the one thing too is our detox time does not count towards their treatment time. Meaning really? it counts for their treatment time, but not their 42 days. So once they're out of detox, once they start residential, that's when they start. They, we don't, Hey, they've been in detox three days and they only get this many days. It's a 42 day program of residential treatment. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've t- I was talking with, um, somebody in the show, um, maybe a season or so back about, uh, Matt McCoviak about, um, what it takes to get homeless out of that, that 
that cycle, getting out of the going back to being homeless immediately after being released from prison. And we were talking about um, how one might get past this. And I think we both came to the same conclusion. Maybe, maybe we even had this opinion before we even started, but we just confirmed it is I don't think it works unless you just make absolutely sure a doctor is looking at them and says they're ready. If they aren't ready, they're not ready. It might take them another week to be ready. And if you just let them out right now, they're going to go right back. As soon as they're ready, that's when they're ready. And it takes somebody who's skilled enough to understand what the difference of those two things are, who's going to be able to see through the lies and see, you know, their body language is telling me they're, they still have some pretty strong um, needs for drugs, et cetera. I think that just, you know, kind of, accentuates the point that they need a good aftercare program because this isn't just a 42 day, you know, thing we, we need to follow them as long. We work with like track nine to follow them for up for 12 months. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm working on developing an app with our team that will help them stay connected mm-hmm. to our, to warrior's heart uh, throughout that process. And we also have a sober living campus with 52 beds with 30 intensive outpatient beds embedded in that program. So they can opt to go to that program as well mm-hmm. for long-term recovery. We have warriors that have been in our sober living program for over two years. And they just decided to make this part of their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So what do you feel about um, the value of group therapy in particular? Is that, is that really useful? I mean, I've heard sort of mixed feelings about it. You know, the, the strongest person in the group, the, the most dominant personality is going to take over or no, this changed my life. This is the right way to do it. And maybe the one, you're the ones talking. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I think there is some of that. However, it depends on the facilitation, mm-hmm. right? So we actually have a master group facilitator that is on our staff and she's uh, one of the best counselors I've ever met. And she designed through uh, the, they designed the program, Annette Hill designed our program when they first started, uh, world-renowned therapists. So this is Kelly Harris, who's our master group facilitator, and she basically goes through and videos every group, and this is how it should be done. Now, we have left-right limits for our clinicians. They get freedom to do the groups how they, how they like, but they need to stay within this. So when they see that, they're able to be able to all right, this person isn't talking. They need to be able to facilitate well. So we do a lot of training around that as far as making sure that they know how to objection handle. They know, I mean, because a group can get out of control, Sure. right? But to answer your question, yeah, they're extremely powerful. And done correctly, it can be a very, it can be a catalyst to healing because, you know, they just have to feel heard. And sometimes with a large group, some don't feel heard. So that's why we've added the caseload groups as a, uh, portion of our treatment mm-hmm. where it's a smaller group. So maybe someone it triggered someone in, in the large group and they need to be able to facilitate it with their therapist and their team. Mm-hmm. And I think we, uh, we got the right mix there. Yeah. I think especially with first responders and military, that's having people who have gone through it before and, you know, seeing these kind of terrible things. I remember one of my military friends was giving me a very gory retelling of something he had happen. And it was so distant and like unrelatable to me personally. Yeah. I don't know that I reacted correctly to the situation. Not that there's a correct or right sure. or wrong way, but 
I don't know that he got out of that conversation what he would have somebody else going, yeah, man, you know, that didn't happen to me, but something else very terrible happened to me. I think there's, there's a lot of value in just having someone nod and not nod in the sense that they know what you're talking about, but nod that they, they've been there. They, they lost a buddy in a similar way, or they, they heard that story before through somebody else or something similar happened or whatever. Well, I think we all try to, in the human experience, we try to find parallels with each other, right? We're sure we're, we're travel. And, and when we, when we can find some common ground with someone we want to, you know, share. So when they're like, I get it. I may not have that exact experience, but I understand, you know, I always try to tell people, you know, there's difference in sympathy and empathy. Right. So for me, like if, if I broke my leg, someone, and if you've never broken your leg, you're like, man, that must suck. Right. But then next week you break your leg, you come back and you're like, man, that sucks. <laughs> right. Cause you, you have some understanding that yeah. to me is the difference. Right. Absolutely. But you have to be in an empath. You have to be very careful that you don't carry their feelings because then you're not putting your mask on. Right. right. So self-care is very important. So you just have to be cognizant of it, but it's very important. I had a conversation with somebody I care quite a bit about and they went through quite a bit of trauma and our lives very closely mirrored one another, despite the fact that I had nothing close to the same kinds of traumas in the same kinds of ways, or really very little about our lives are relatable in that sense. But it doesn't seem to matter. Like the net result was that we have very similar outlooks in the world, um, which I thought was kind of interesting because, you know, I didn't, you know, nothing terrible happened to me when I was a child or whatever, you know, so there's a lot of things that go along with that. But I, I don't think that suffering should be a um, suffering contest either. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a way to play that uh, where both parties are getting something beneficial out of it as opposed to, well, you should have seen this terrible thing that happened mm-hmm. to me or whatever. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. And I think that goes back to the facilitator. Yeah. Right. Being able to see those, you know, tied tides change in the group or this, that, and the other, if it is becoming a competition, right. Then they can objection handle and redirect, right. And being able to deescalate and then get the, get the topic and the conversation back to a therapeutic nature. Mm -hmm. And that's the art of a true uh, clinician is being able to take situations and conversations and deescalation and put it all together into a therapeutic model to where it's like that person's like, like I keep saying, that string of words makes sense. They're like, ah, I get it. How long has this uh, been an operation? We've been open since 2000. They purchased the property in 2015. First client 2016. Okay. So seven, six, seven, six, seven, seven, yeah. Somewhere in that range. Um, have you seen any sort of results afterward? I mean, is there sort of a trend line of how this is going? Like what's sort of the, how are, how are people reacting to this? I think we've had huge success. You know, we, we, we use track nine. I mean, you know, I'm not familiar with that. What is track that? nine is a, it's a, it's a model they use where they fill out different. Um, it's basically a, um, I'm sorry, a metrics. So it helps us do aftercare metrics or um, I'm, I'm, the word escapes me, but um, like trending or something trends. And, and it's doctors that look at the different trends and the different flags and then our clinicians can react a certain way. And then it follows them for up to 12 months. So they're doing surveys basically scientifically backed, you know, um, outcome measures. That's the word I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what we see on, on trending is that warriors want this type of treatment. 
they're more and more going to their VAs and going to their TRICARE and say, I want to go to Warrior's Heart, nowhere else. This is what they're... How, how, do they, how do they even find out about you? Well, through, I mean, through websites, we've done different documentaries. We have you know, partnerships with, with uh, uh, companies that warriors resonate with, like Black Rifle Coffee. Mm-hmm. Matt and Evan have been uh, supporters of our company since we opened. They provide all the coffee for the treatment center. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, you know, a lot of times it's word of mouth. You know, our warriors will, will leave and go, I've been sober for two years. You should go to Warrior's Heart because we all know someone's struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I don't know a veteran that doesn't know 10 veterans that are struggling. And so yeah. they're like, a lot of times they're like, you need to go. I went to Warrior's Heart. You need to go. So how much... It seems to me like part of the problem is um, people come out of the military, as you said. They have all these skills, and they're real skills. These are things they've fought hard for, literally, in some cases, fought for them. Um, but they learn these very, very tough things to learn. And then they get in the civilian world, and they can barely get a job at Taco Bell. Barely. Um, because they just don't translate well to the, to the rest of the world. And I, that's got to be both demoralizing to a degree. It's, as you said, working, you know, not that I have any problems with, you know, collecting someone's trash. The world would be covered in trash if we didn't have it. But I can see why having done something that meant a lot to you and then coming across this job, that's just a job and you, you provide provides you barely a salary and no sense of purpose. That'd be really tricky. So what about like out, you know, treatment for placing them in a place that they could actually leverage their skills and like getting them some meaning back? Yeah. I think there's a lot of room in the veteran space for that. So I, I personally think that we do a really horrible job on the outside in the civilian world of accepting our nation's heroes into our companies. I think it, it plays well on a website, but in practice it's hard to do because we come with a lot of things. So I think maybe educating our our entrepreneurs and our CEOs that the value that a veteran brings to the organization in these leadership executive positions mm-hmm. because they've run, you know, huge teams, right? They they show up first and leave last. I mean, mm-hmm. you're just going to get a great. But it also comes with, hey, man, they also have some doctor's appointments, <laughs> right? And they're also going to start yelling, yeah. like, drop and give well, me think, 20. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the misconception. I was just, but, yeah, but just it, it's, you know, you can run into some, some sometimes sure. you can run into that. So just don't hire about, any drill sergeants. That's right. Fine. <laughs> knowing the resources that are out there to be able to help that community as well is, in, is important. But I think what we, we need to do is stick to what, you know, you know, what we are, what makes, what are the things we can do, right? And sure getting too far outside of that, then we lose scope. So I think we need to work with other folks, but aftercare is really important. Making sure that we, that we provide them with that, where they're going back to setting them up with a therapist, making sure that they have that follow through, because if it's just, I want your treatment and now I'm better. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to work it. How many of the people go through your clinic, would you say are physically injured from, from combat? As a percentage, you think? Uh, probably 10 to 20%, and I'm guessing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, It's a pretty pretty large amount. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I'm not necessarily combat, but, I mean, most vets I know are broken somehow. You know, 
I'm, as I sit here in front of you, I'm 90% disabled from the VA because of all the things, not only the post-traumatic stress, but all the other little things that have happened to me over the years in service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a common experience with most. I mean, if you think about how we come up in the military, it's, it's, it's like being a professional athlete a lot of times. Not all of us, but <laughs> some of us Air Force guys. <laughs> <laughs> But your army guys, especially special operations, they they perform at levels that even the professional athletes can't. Mm-hmm. You know, for extended long periods of time, twelve months, yeah, fifteen months downrange. You know, so they have to be in peak physical condition, and that's yeah. why, you know, but that's that's tough on your body. It is. So you know, broken ankles. You know, you you name it, fractured backs and exactly. all that stuff. Yeah, you know necks that are, don't work anymore and mm, yeah carrying heavy loads bum knees <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so yeah i hear that so um how does this all play into the air force's wounded warrior program is that is that a feeder into you guys or how does it no guess? so that's where i worked prior to this so uh-huh. you know i had done as you know much like many veterans i got out decided that you know i was going to stay home on my couch and just go fishing every day and after about eight months of that it was no bueno. So mm-hmm. I went finding work, worked at a couple of different jobs. I got a, started in my own truck driving company and realized, you know, my, my goal was I was going to put, it was called Heroes Trucking Company. I was going to put veterans to work. I was going to buy a truck, drive it for six months, make enough money to buy another truck and put another veteran in that and then grow it that way. Mm-hmm. Quickly found out how that wasn't going to work and 13 hours a day plus of windshield time was not good for someone that was struggling with PTS. Right. So I decided to move into a different direction. Um, I had seven or eight different jobs. I had to either get in my own way, get fired or quit. And I just couldn't find my, my niche in this world. I couldn't find it. And I was just struggling, you know, some of the darkest times in my history. So then I met the people at the air force wounded warrior program. Cause I'm a wounded warrior. And I, I was one of their, uh, she's like, Hey, I heard you do art. Cause after I got out of treatment, I also started doing art. My case manager would follow me and I would share some of the, artwork I did with him. He said, well, we're going to have this art symposium in the Pentagon and we'd like to invite you to come out and share your art. Well, what I didn't know was they had lithographed some of my stuff I shared with my case manager and they was going to be on the wall. And it was, mm. so they were celebrating my art. So I got to go to the Pentagon. It's pretty wow. cool. How cool. So I met the team there and I got interested and they're like, you should come work for us. Uh, so they hired me. And I, for about two years, I worked with them. Um, I helped Warriors find adaptive sports. I really f- was passionate about it, but my commute was about an hour and a half a day, one way. Mm-hmm. And then I would travel about 200 days a year on a plane. So it got to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's rough. So about that time, around two and a half years, I met uh, Lisa Lannon, who was one of the founders of Warriors Heart. Our daughters played softball together. Mm. And we just started talking, and I, you know, probably over talked her and, and I shared her about the book. So, uh, she said, I think we have a copy at warrior's heart. I dropped one off when they first opened. Mm-hmm. It's about a year later and she read it. And then she invited me to just come your warrior, come hang out, you know, and those talks, I met Josh Lennon, her, her husband, who's the co-founder. I hadn't met Tom yet, but and then they invited me to come work for him. Mm-hmm. And I started as a missions advocate, outreach coordinator, um, and, uh, man, really just fell in love with the place. I had my struggles early on though. 
and I was a warrior and this, you know, being in a treatment environment, I didn't understand some of the things you can as staff and can't do. Like, you know, I was a smoker back then. Like I said, I can't smoke with warriors. You can't do that. Right. And I was, mm. you know, so, Oh crap. So I was trying to find my way and I kept stepping on my own toes. Mm-hmm. They never gave up on me. They never said, so what did they do? They promoted me. I <laughs> <laughs> said, you, you, you're not a good admissions advocate. Why don't you be the director? <laughs> so they made me the admissions director and I really fell in love with that position and their culture. I got, you know, hang out with Tom, who's one of the most amazing humans on the planet, mm-hmm. uh, former Delta force operator and just such a humble, just a quiet professional. Right. And they, they incorporated me into their, their, their family. Uh, and I have a seven-minute commute to work because oh, I wow. built this place in my backyard. So, <laughs> um, and I just fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with helping warriors, and I fell in love with them as humans, mm-hmm. right, and what they're doing. And I decided, you know, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. So we did some professional leadership training. They they really believe in treating their staff how they would want to be treated, Right. In a, in a workplace. So they provide us training. They took 17 of us to Africa and we climbed Kilimanjaro all because we needed to live the very best lives. We should to show that these warriors that we can do it too. If they can do it, I can. And my daughter was on staff. She was 21. She summited Mount Kilimanjaro at 21. So and she, cause she worked with us and she did all the work. It wasn't like, Hey, you want a free trip to Africa? We had to do eight months of, of homework and work and physical and all of it. We had to That's earn the right, just like our warriors make us earn the right to treat them. And we should because they deserve it. So they do things like that for us. Um, about a year ago, he asked me, he says, how do you want to grow in this company? I told him I want to help grow it, business development and this and the other. He said, create it. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I've done. And now I, we're, we're expanding and I get to be, play a big part in that. And I'm just blessed to work with such a great company that's helping warriors. And uh, I will tell anyone that listens on any street corner about warriors heart, because it is uh, the jewel out there of the treatment centers. It's, you know, just some of the accolades joint commission three times over, which is the creme de la creme of healthcare certifications. Uh, We were rated number four healthcare organization by real leaders magazine. So we're doing it and we're doing it right. Mm -hmm. So, I was going to ask about the dogs um, sure. since you mentioned it in the book. Um, I was actually, I'm sorry, Chris, you were about to have a dog in your house. I was very convinced Justin would walk through the door with a dog. And uh, <laughs> so I apologize for not telling you ahead of time. Um, <clears throat> it would have been fine. It'd just yeah. kind of hang out in the corner, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, service, service animals have to be very, very, yeah. they can't. They can't be jumping around mm-hmm. and licking everything. That's right. Robert, I'm a dog guy. I love dogs. (laughs) Bring them all. We'll take them all. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, But um, so just walk walk me through how how that all started. How did you get involved with that? So when I moved to Kirtland, which was my second, the duty station after my therapist told me I should, you know, I met a, I was with my daughter and I was having some struggles and I thought I'd, I thought it was cured, right? And I didn't know. And then I had those regressions where I saw those corner vans we talked about but I was still very adverse to medication. And about that time I met a guy named Jim Stanick at one of, it was one of these like on base events where they were having like jump castles. So I picked my daughter up from the child development center, which is the base daycare. 
went over there and let her and he come up and he had this dog. He had this beautiful dog and I, I was a dog guy. We had three dogs at the time. By the way, side note, we now have five because my wife works at a vet <laughs> clinic. So I'm the crazy dog guy. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I met him and he, and he, and he, I guess he sensed it on me because we can see each other a mile away. He sure. goes, Hey brother, I don't know if you're struggling or not, but it looks like you are. And if you want some help, I got it. And I said, tell me more. So he handed me a pamphlet and he said, just give me a call. So I was intrigued because he, he had said, I got the cure. And I was like, the cure, there's no cure. And so I, I had a like kind of bad reaction to those words. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to prove him wrong. Right. The more I started looking into what he was doing and, and the science behind it, the more I was like, this may be it. Holy crap. He may not be blowing smoke. So I talked to my wife about it. We met with them and the trainers and they agreed to take me on as a client. Hmm. And I was the first active duty because this was 2010 to be allowed to have a service animal on. on. So of course that put me in the front lines, right? Like cover all, of all Airman magazine. Yeah, yeah. Cover of Airman magazine. Cause they're like, Hey, we're supporting PTS and this and the other. I didn't realize at the time that probably wasn't the right move. Why? How so? Uh, because I was thrust into, you know, this, spotlight of hey look at what we're doing right yeah, you weren't you so were, i had you weren't ready yet that's what you're saying i wasn't i wasn't properly healing mm-hmm. because i was too worried about what they you know they they did this i have to act a certain way right and i can't you know so i was repressed or was repressing a lot of the things i was feeling because i didn't want to upset them because they they put all this faith in me right so if i wasn't feeling like going to do a tele a radio interview i, I would go anyway because you know, well, they did this for me. I should really, you know, so, um, and like I said, I got nothing but support. I'm not bad mouthing. It was just my personal journey and I needed that journey to be where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with Dallas, you know, she, we trained for about six months. She was certified through Paul's and stripes and she started working. But my, what my training entailed was, Every day I was working towards not needing the leash, meaning that it was a bridge to healing, not a road. Service dog for post-traumatic stress should not be forever. Mm. In some cases, it can be long-term, you know, and and for some disabilities it can. But I'm living proof that you can learn to walk without the leash, and I did that in 2013. So Dallas, who was my English bulldog, who who was with me for about two and a half, three years, uh, got hurt on duty. Um, she got developed bursitis in her shoulder. So I, so I had uh, retired her and trained my next one, Sarge. So Sarge developed osteosarcoma early on in his, uh, service life, which is bone cancer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was, he would not let you know that he was in pain, but he would be bleeding. Oof. And if you shake his head, it would look like a murder scene. Mm-hmm. So when I found out that he had no upper jaw left from the, the cancer, we, we made that hard decision. And uh, from that moment, and I think it was kind of, you know, I, I believe in the universe and spirituality and all that. And I believe he was telling me it's time that you can do this on your own. You got this. So that was the last moment I walked with the service animal. Mm. It really was helpful and cathartic for me and it helped me in a lot of years, but I, I needed to do it on my own. And I did. And since then uh, I've been, you know, very successful and, 
as far as helping others with that. And, you know, and when I found out Warriors Heart had a service animal program, it just made me love them even more. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool feature. Yeah. I, I strongly believe that animals are <clears throat> a link to healing. It definitely reduces cortisol, mm-hmm. um, increases oxytocin, like all the things. Right? Nightmare mitigation. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I've seen some that even. Well, like, will they wake you up? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Mm-hmm. So if you're in a, in a, in a nightmare, you know, you don't want a great Dane for this, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but a little Boston Terrier will jump on your chest and, and, and we'll bring you up. out. Yep. Interesting. Or just having that connection uh-huh. in the bed with you. Um, Cash can talk about this. She's like, man, she's the Michael Jordan of service dog trainers in my opinion. Huh. So, uh, but it's just a great and then, you know, even if they're not getting a service animal, they can still participate in our canine academy, go down and learn tips and techniques for their own dogs. We we encourage them to walk all of our dogs daily and on the nature walks. So our, our dogs are getting uh they're getting trained four to five times a day. Mm-hmm. Most programs is once a day. That's why it takes about six months. But we can turn out a really, really terrific dog in about forty two days. So what would you recommend if you're listening to this or watching this and, you know, this is call it 20 years ago when you were sort of in the thick of it, let's say, yeah. what would you, what would you say to that person listening? Well, if they're struggling and they need the help to make the call, you know, our team is there 24 hours a day. And even if it's, even if warrior's heart's not a fit, we're going to work to find the fit for you. Right. So, there are some folks that don't struggle with addiction that just maybe struggle with uh, post-traumatic stress. We have programs that we partner with that we can make a referral to, mm. you know, the idea is that you call, sorry, can't help you. No, we're not going to do that. We have a team of admissions advocates and they, cause they advocate so from the moment they speak to you and you're, you know, that's who you're assigned to. They follow you through treatment, through aftercare, you name it, you need help. They're there for you. Mm-hmm. And we have a team of six now and we're, we're, you're, you know, uh, I used to lead that department. Now, uh, my, my, <laughs> after the promotion, <laughs> well, my, my number two, um, Mike Odell, oh, I say my number two, he's a Marine. So I'll give him the, <laughs> he's now the admissions director. And I tell you, I couldn't be more proud of, of that human. He mm-hmm. is one of the best people I know and he leads that team and he's growing it. And it's just, it, it warms my heart to see, uh, him doing so well. That's awesome. And he struggled with addiction, uh, for a lot of years. So. To what, be able to do you have bounce a, back. Do you have an idea of the recidivism rate? Do people fall back into it? At the- well, I know in the industry, from what I understand, it's 40 to 60%. We're nowhere near that. If I had to guess, it would be probably about 13 to 18% for us. That's great. Yeah. But you don't, there's so many variables and factors, like the ones that don't call, you don't know. So it's, it's hard to really put a number. But with Track 9, we can get annual numbers and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's if I had to guess, like I said, that's where I would be. Wow, that's still amazing. Yeah. That's way I know that better our, than AA or one of those. Oh, for sure. And I know our um, our what we call ACA rate, which is against clinical advice. That means anyone that comes to treatment and doesn't complete treatment, they leave early for some reason because we're not a lockdown campus. But you know, we're going to try everything we can to to keep them there. It's about seven percent. So it's only seven percent of the people that come through our program leave without completing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they come back at a later time because they like realize that they didn't. But one of the things we utilize is we don't just allow our clinicians to try to block people leaving. 
we allow anyone on staff. If you've res, if you're a housekeeper and you resonate with that warrior, like maybe y'all had a conversation, go. Mm-hmm. We're not going to all team up. <laughs> right. We'll talk to them. Sometimes it's just a walk around the property. They just need to get it out. So you don't do the shark attacks sort of. No. Yeah. We, we're very cognizant of that. We do not want to send more than needed. So when we communicate, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else knows to just be at a distance, be ready to help when needed. So how do people find out about the program? How do they learn more, read more, uh, get in contact with you guys? Well, the best way is to go to our website and that's uh, www.warriorsheart.com. You know, we're on social, Facebook. Uh, we, we just have, we just started a TikTok. <laughs> that's been okay. in this. All right. So we started a TikTok. <laughs> get, our media manager. get banned by yeah, no, <laughs> Our media manager, Mo, Mo, loves doing new TikToks. He has some, uh, he has Mike Armarine eating crayons on that thing. It's, <laughs> it's fun. But that's the way to find us. Also, there's a resource on there I wanted to share with your sure. audience too. Yeah, so one of the things we talked about 12 Steps Briefly here, we are a 12-step program, but we, we created Warriors Anonymous, which is basically Warriors Only AA. We've got it approved through Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's online resource, and they can start their own uh, groups as well. We have the, the tools for them to do that. Like local groups? Yeah, even if they haven't gone through a program and they're, and they're qualified as a warrior and they need a meeting, and they're, you know, they can go on our website to the Resources tab, find Warriors Anonymous, and find anything Oh, it's cool. About I've never, how to heard, do it. never heard of that. Absolutely. That's great. So Tom helped create that because we needed a meeting for just us. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's several meetings hosted online a week. Uh, so if you're not able to get one, there's always a resource or you can start your own. Mm-hmm. That's great. And how do people find the book or can talk with, talk with, uh, touch with you? Absolutely. So anywhere books are sold, uh, Amazon's easiest typically. Um, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, they all sell it. So it's, but yeah, just, and if you want to get in touch with me, justin.jordan at warriorsheart.com. That's great. Well, Justin, thank uh, This has been a pretty harrowing thing to talk about. And, um, and, uh, I really appreciate you having a stiff upper lip about this whole thing. I know it's uh, pretty traumatic and, uh, I think a lot of people could do really well by some of these uh, tactics and techniques and stuff. So thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Mm -hmm.